It's very hard to eat a ketogenic diet that's full of ultra-processed foods. Now, we get general population are getting, I think it was 40% of our energy from discretionary foods, which are ultra-processed products. So the first thing you do for somebody when you put them on a ketogenic diet is you remove that. Welcome to The Proof Podcast, a space for science-based conversation exploring the health and longevity benefits that come with mastering nutrition, physical exercise, mindfulness, recovery, sleep, and alignment. Facts, nuance, and trustworthy recommendations, minus the hyperbole. Howdy, friends. Great to be here with you. I hope that you've been keeping well and are enjoying your week. I'm your host, Simon Hill. I'm a qualified physiotherapist and nutritionist with an undergraduate science degree and a master's in the science of human nutrition. In today's episode, Drew and I sit down with Kieran Rooney, PhD, to discuss the different types of energy systems our body uses to take the food we eat and turn it into energy. The purpose of this episode was to take a deep dive into these systems with a biochemist so we can better appreciate the biology that underpins different types of training, specifically moderate intensity continuous training or zone two, for example, sitting on a bike at a moderate intensity for 60 minutes versus high intensity interval training, often abbreviated as HIT, where you do very high intensity short bursts of exercise. A really important thing we want you to know before going into this episode, Drew and I treated this as a fact-finding discussion, three hours with a highly intelligent researcher and biochemist. We didn't go into it thinking we would walk away with all of our questions answered. And in fact, when we reflected on this episode, although we learned a gigantic amount, we still have many, many more questions. So consider it a topic that we'll continue to explore together. Today, we focus a fair bit on the basic biology, what's happening in our cells during different types of exercise. When are we preferentially using fat to produce energy versus glucose? What does metabolic health and metabolic flexibility mean? Our hope is that by taking this ground up approach, starting with the basic biology, we will give greater meaning to our training and be empowered with the necessary knowledge to create more specific and effective training programs based on our individual goals. And that's the key takeaway here. When you understand the mechanisms and what's happening at a cellular level during different types of training, you're then better empowered to take control of the way in which you move your body. As a reminder, if you're listening to this on audio, this episode and all episodes of The Proof are available in full-length video on YouTube. This is me, Drew, and Kieran Rooney. Please enjoy. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. 
It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating 2 to 3 pieces of fatty fish per week in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Rooney, thanks for joining us. <laughs> Not a problem, Simon. Thanks for having me. Um, so we were just laughing about your email. You did... Managed to find us, yeah. and here we are. In between a pub and a cafe. <laughs> it's a dodgy building. It is dodgy from the outside. <laughs> Mate, I can't believe we're doing this. Yeah. 15 years ago, we were in a lecture theatre in Sydney Uni. I was walking in screaming your name. How did that happen? <laughs> how did you start screaming my name? Yeah. Or how did you start ending up for, in For people classes? listening, I used to just walk into the lecture theatre for some reason. I, you were my favourite lecturer, so I would just say. Thank you. I would just go, Rooney, as like loud as I could. And then like mm. all my mates would do it and we'd like echo this Rooney. Mm. And, yeah. then you, and then you'd start, start returning fire. And yeah. then you'd be like, Harrisburg. <laughs> what was it? What, what was it about Rooney that, that he just, made you... Uh, See him as your favorite lecturer. I think it was the sense of humor. Oh, you, you made us laugh. Well, now there's pressure on me today, there's right? No pressure. <laughs> there's no pressure. <laughs> I almost just dropped one. What's, what's the rules on swearing? And- <laughs> oh, what other rules? Uh, it's a uh, it's, uh, fair game, I think. Fair yeah. game, good, cool. Yeah. Just sometimes when I get relaxed and casual. Right. They might yeah. that well, that's out. a disclaimer for any parents that are in the car right now. <laughs> if you have kids in the backseat, this this might not this be go somewhere. Yeah. The, uh, the best one. Yeah, also then my disclaimer is I'm here as Kiran Rooney and not in my capacity as a lecturer at the university. That's so, a if say, too. Yeah, exactly. right? so if I say anything offensive, <laughs> yeah. it's all on me and not okay. my employer. All right. that? As long as you're still yeah. scientific. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, but mate, it was, uh, who would have thought if you told me 15 years ago that we'd be sitting here in Bondi recording a podcast? Did you actually pass my unit? <laughs> <laughs> there he goes. There he goes. Harrisburg! <laughs> uh, I don't know. Did I, I Look, I was a, I was a, not the best student, I can admit that. I was a bit naughty and, you know, I like to have a bit of fun. Yeah. Um, I wasn't at uni to learn at that point. I was just there for the partying and stuff. But I actually regret, if I have one regret, it's that I didn't focus enough. Because after uni, I'm so interested in all the topics that I didn't pay attention in. Yeah, but, and and this is why I'm not here in my capacity as a lecturer at a university. You've got to understand that what we learn at university is often, it's got to be conventional. 
it's got to be accessible, which means it's got to be consistent across pretty much anywhere you might go. So mm. if I'm writing my curriculum for a biochemistry unit, I can give you the fun and exciting stuff that might be novel, mm. but for all we know, that might be outdated or it might be wrong because it hasn't stood the test of time. So we're bound to textbooks that we know that it's defensible for you to go anywhere. Right. right? So even if you didn't pay attention at university, that's okay because it would have been fundamental stuff that you can pretty much pick up anywhere. Mm-hmm. Interesting right? take. It's the... Is when you look at the elective units or when you look at the special interest topics, that's the fun stuff that you should pay attention to. And most people do that outside of uni mm. anyway. Mm. And part of our marketing campaigns across the country at the moment is very few people are employed in what they did their first degree in. Mm-hmm. So that's not necessarily a big problem for you because, all right, you've done that foundation to teach you how to learn, how to engage with science, how to pick it apart to then actually develop your talents elsewhere. Yeah, I think some of the biggest takeaways are just learning how to learn and yeah. understanding the principles. Yeah. And then, you know, as you say, and I think what you're alluding to is that it's it's now some of this information is more relevant to yeah. what you're doing today and therefore you're more interested in getting into the intricacies and, yeah. and learning it. There's an actual real reason behind it. It's not just passing a subject. Yeah, I think like every year you spend out of uni, you're looking for ways to apply that knowledge that you've learned. Mm. And it's funny because today I'm still wondering whether or not what I learned back at uni is relevant even to this discussion we're going to have around mm. exercise and energy systems. Is, is it still relevant? It, have those textbooks, well, they're probably no longer textbooks anymore, but has that information changed and how, how much has it changed? I'm fascinated to learn about this. Yeah, and <clears throat> the other thing to keep in mind there is the way in which especially this field is changing is rapid. Mm. So 15 years ago, we didn't have at least four studies that have come out in the last five years that have really changed the way we might think about particular diets and fuel use, which we'll get into. So, for example, like let's take the keto study. Yeah. When you were coming through uni 15 years ago, if I wanted to talk to you about that, I had a handful of papers from the 70s and the 80s that mm-hmm. I would have used for my classes, which we now have far more information and new knowledge from papers that came out in 2010, 2015, 2019. So... If I'd made that into a curriculum in our unit, already now I'd be saying to you, everything I taught you, Drew, forget it because mm. it's wrong mm. or something like that, yeah. right? So. And yeah, I mean, that even that buzzword, keto, back then, without social media, it was like no one even knew what it was. No, it wasn't. It yeah. wasn't. It, it wasn't, wasn't something. Yeah. Right. It's amazing how, mm. it's, how it's changed. I mean, I've seen you a couple of times over the last 15 years. Once was at the, the low-carb. No, effect. that sugar film. That sugar film, that's it. That yep. sugar film. The Damon Gamo. That's it. So you were the... Uh, I was a scientific a consultant yes. for that, which was great. So um, Damon reached out because he heard from some people who heard from some people that I might know something about sugar. So at the time, um, so 2009, 2010, uh, I was doing a, a handful of rodent studies. So um, back then the big debate in sugar that was around was whether or not sucrose had different metabolic effects to high fructose corn syrup because mm-hmm. in America there was a, a lawsuit going on between the sugar refiners and the corn refiners because there was some advocate, advertising campaign that had come out saying, so in America you use high fructose corn syrup as your sweetener, whereas here we use sucrose, right? Mm. And um, 
So there was this big debate as to whether or not one was more dangerous than the other. and Independent of calories. Independent of calories. Right. It's just, yeah, the, the sweetness index and the fact that high fructose corn syrup has more fructose than sucrose does and fructose was particularly damaging to the human mm-hmm. body. So therefore, HFCS or high fructose corn syrup was worse for right. you. Um, anyway, so I was doing some rodent work out here with a colleague in psychology where we were having a look at the impact of just sugar on uh, metabolic development, but also on cognitive development, so memory, and uh, decided we'd do this project because there was this uh, argument at the moment between the different types of sugars. So we did a, a sucrose versus our own glucose fructose mix, um, and we thought we'd have a look at that. And around about that time, the debate back here uh, was largely around whether or not fructose was inherently toxic. Um, so I'd gotten talking to a number of people around the place uh, who were advocating for low fructose diets and the like, because our data came out and said, well, actually, they're both comparable for the metabolic damage. Um, and in some instances, you might find worsening effects between the two, but really, they were both awful for you. And when um, you say they were both awful for metabolic health, mm. was that in experiments where you're feeding the animal like it's sort of maintenance calories or feeding it a surplus of calories? Well, the, the wonderful thing, Simon, about rodents is because they're in a controlled environment, they actually are awesome at self-regulating their calorie intake. So you, what we see happens in the rodent studies is you've got control animal and they're just in a box that's eating their standard chow with drinking water. And then in your test group, they've got chow and sugar water. Gotcha. And they both might be eating, I'll just make up a number, 100 kilojoules a day, for example, which would be massive for a rodent. But anyway, let's just go with 100 because it's easy. And you'd find that then obviously with the control animal, all 100 kilojoules is coming from the chow and there's zero in the water. You find that in your test group, they're also eating about 100 kilojoules a day. But the difference is that they're getting 50 of it from the chow and 50 of it from the Mm -hmm. sugar water. Um, The the best that we saw was maybe 40% energy from the sugar drinks and 6% from the chow. Mm -hmm. So straight away with a lot of rodent work, people sit there and go, well, there's no human population that has that, you know, 40% of their energy is from liquid sources. And so at the back then, there was a little bit of epidemiology checking to go, well, actually... In Australia, we're pretty close, like 20, 25%. And then um, we also did some subsequent studies where we then matched it. So we only gave the animals two hours a day access. So we capped it at like 15% of their energy coming from the sugar drinks. Right. And the key there was they still get the metabolic detriment. You just got to go for longer. Right. Right. So when the animals are getting 40% of their energy from sugar water, within four weeks, they got fatty liver. Right. They're also forgetting where they left their keys and things like that. And that's like even that. though they are regulating total caloric intake. Total caloric intake. That's right. right. So this is ad lib feeding though. They ad-lib. could they could easily go into a surplus of calories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. They've got access to those calories. Yeah. Homeostatically, they just mm. regulate. Yeah. But that's fascinating though, because what is it that's different about that versus humans oh, right now? Yeah. yeah. So 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 explain that so that it. Um, to help someone sort of make sense of that. Why, you know, I think um, Kevin Hall did that study with ultra processed foods and it was, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that one. It was a couple of years ago. but Yeah, just because you use your soft age, not your hard age. I call him Kevin Hall. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> Kevin Hall. And, uh, Kevin Hall. Uh, you know, in that study yeah. there where it was ad lib, fed people the ultra processed foods, yeah. they they consumed more of that food yeah. compared to, to when they were consuming a relatively unprocessed diet. Yeah. So, so what is it about the experiment that you did with the mice that you think is different? Oh, well, 
So when we look at when we look at the context of human eating, we no longer, I'll say just general, I'll make general outrageous claims about everybody. We no longer literally follow our interoceptive signals. So we have hormonal signals that control appetite and, re- and satiety, you know, adiponectin, leptin, insulin, whatever you want to start rattling off ghrelin and all the others. But we also have uh, physical signals that would come through. Your, your belly will swell and that will send a signal up to the brain to say, oh, look, I'm actually at capacity. Maybe you don't necessarily need to eat anymore. And, um, and then you, you, you might slow down. Then when the body when it shrinks, there might be another signal that comes through. We also tend to take a lot of cues or what they call cue potentiated eating from the outside environment. We know that we can, well, we know. We've seen in studies where people put you down and if you uh, sitting with somebody who eats a lot, you tend to eat more. Right. You also tend to eat more in a social context than if you're eating mm-hmm. alone. Um, and so you have those other influences that determine how much you necessarily would particularly eat. Mm-hmm. And when you think about social context, you're there talking to each other and you might just be nibbling mm-hmm. on something. You also have learned behaviours where you might have for a period of time, go, oh, every time I drive here, I, I nibble on something or mm-hmm. I need my snack for the car right. or something like that. And we're not necessarily eating in those prescribed right. meal plans. So basically... Because of that social context and those myriad of factors, we're not as good as we would otherwise be at sort of uh, listening to that internal radar, which yeah. is which would help us regulate food much better. Yeah. So then when we're looking at rodent studies that are so controlled, is it fair to be able to extrapolate what we learn from that feeding to our environment, which is so different? Like why, why are we... Leaning so heavily on it is it is interesting. Sorry, just yeah. to interject here though. It is interesting because it does isolate the the the, the it isolates the fructose or the sugar component and sort of at least in that model rules that out as driving excessive calorie consumption. Right, that's right. So it points to all these other factors. Right, right. So. So one of the other worlds I live in that I love is uh, research integrity and, and bias in research, specifically in animal research. Mm. Um, so I don't know if you saw in the bio, I've been part of a review panel for what we call the Arrive Guidelines, which is a set of rules by which everybody should write their animal research papers up by when they publish it um, and looks at the methods that we use in animal research that might be limiting how well we can translate to human populations. Okay. And it's a fascinating area because there are certain disciplines who are like, well, the rodent studies are are really limiting what they're telling us about humans. Now, in the first instance, people just immediately go, well, I'm not a rat, so obviously it's not going to work, right? But there are species similarities in which makes them useful. But I would argue only from a mechanistic perspective, and that's what you're saying, Simon, right? So we can't really learn much about how a rodent eats to tell us how a human eats. But what we can do is potentially with well-controlled and well-designed studies uh, answer some of the more subtle nuances. If you're sitting there going, oh, I can't drink Coke in America because it's made with high fructose corn syrup, but I can drink Coke in Australia because it's sucrose. Like, we've lost the battle, right? The fact is you just should be sitting there going, I'm not going to drink this product for that reason. But it would be really interesting in that experiment had you seen, for example, when, when they did have the option of drinking the, the fructose, they consumed way more calories. Mm. Then all of a sudden you have this hypothesis that maybe fructose does have some 
differing yes. effect. Yeah, mm. that's right. And, and maybe it's worth looking at closer to see if this is something we should really be removing from the food supply. Yeah, well, and the ultra-processed food um, conversation is a fascinating one because really up until oh, I think it's 2010 when the Brazilians brought out the Nova classification, mm. people had already talked about, oh, yeah, it must be something to do with our junk food diets that's having an impact. But have you guys heard of the Nova classification? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So... And so when this classification came out to go, well, let's group all of our processed foods by these criteria and now go back and have a look at our diet history data, they see the people with the worst metabolic outcomes and health outcomes are those who are eating these ultra-processed foods. And so then the current debate is, well, is it something about the nutrient density of those diets that means we need to overeat till we get to a certain protein threshold? Or mm. is it something right. about the fact that they're so uh, um, uh, easy to eat and soluble that mm. we just eat far more of them? We get caught up in that conversation. And one of the ones that I, like, I'm stewing over at the moment when we look at the rodent data is there's this really nice, simple mouse study where they put an emulsifier in the water. That's all they did. Right, And so two groups, one group of mice that just get chow water, the other group just gets chow water, but they've added an emulsifier in there. Uh, I'm gonna, I, I've forgotten the number now, but mm. let's, it's like E600 or something right. like that. It's a common one in, Australia, in um, human food supply. The animals that had the water with the emulsifier in it ate the same amount of energy but got obese. Mm. Wow. And when they have, And what they talk about is that that particular emulsifier impacts the gut and solubility. Mm. And so what was happening was these animals were able to get far more energy out of the food that they were eating than the animals that didn't wow. have the emulsifier. Mm. And because they had, you know, well, they argue that because the animals are still just sitting around in a cage with a similar energy expenditure, that extra energy just been laid down as body fat. Mm. Um, now, you have a think about the ultra-processed ultra mm. foods that we've got out there, as well as the they're easy to eat, so we eat lots of them, we also eat them in a context where we might be eating overly because we're distracted or we're trying to squeeze them in between other meals. There might be non-energy containing components in that product that actually changes how well you influence the foods. This the throws a spanner in the calories in, calories out. I mean, the thermodynamics, the laws still stand, but this could influence essentially what that difference is between calories in, calories out, Right. Or how many calories that are available to you. So maybe the better term is calorie stored versus calories burnt. A calorie availability is, is, is a great way to, to, to frame it. Um, so there's a couple of things. Like the fun one I like to, there's a paper that came out of um, Adelaide and uh, it was drinking vodka with Fanta or vodka with diet Fanta. Mm. And the people drinking vodka with diet Fanta had a higher blood alcohol than the people drinking vodka and Fanta. Mm. And that group have gone down now this area where they're like, well, what's the interaction between non-nutritive sweeteners and energy absorption, mm -hmm. right? Um, there's this paper that came out, oh, I'm going to go 2015. Um, Novotny's, the, the, Novotny's the surname of the first author. They're looking at uh, the energy content of almonds, right? And comparing what we think should be the energy from at-water factors when you burn them in the bomb calorimeter versus the energy when humans actually consume them, put people on this almond-containing diet for a period of time. And showed that, you know, the energy absorption was something like 70% of what it was you'd expect from the numbers that you get from a bong calorimeter. And I think that's, that's a core mm. issue with the whole energy availability or balance area. If you're looking at a food label for energy content, that's a number that's come because it's been burned in a machine right, in the presence of high oxygen. It's not metabolized. Mm. And that's, that's mm. where we get a very big difference. And some people might be thinking, what's a 
the purpose? If we know that ultra processed foods are, are not great in someone's diet, what's the purpose of doing all this? But I think that kind of overlooks the fact that their ultra processed are going to be part of the diets of, of certain populations definitely for the foreseeable future. And there might be some quick wins to reformulate foods if you can identify some of those components. Product reformulation, spoken like a true public health nutritionist right. there, Simon. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I always cop some flack on that. But, oh, really? But, but I mean, um, well, people say that, you know, the the, the industry has been reformulating for, for years, right? And yeah. just creating one problem after the other. But I do think there is some genuine... Um, potential for improving products if we are able to identify, well, what are some of these different factors in ultra-processed foods that lead to poor metabolic health yeah. that are driving the uh, the hyperpalatability, for example? Yeah. So it's interesting because I, um, I think I've waxed and waned on this food industry of demons and are destroying the food environment versus are they a necessary evil that we can empower to help mm. us make better, healthier choices? And, um, you know, uh, a colleague at uni, I think, made a comment which I always need to hold on to as, as being a very accurate and true one. And the place for food industry is that what they brought to society was food security and stability. Um, and whether or not we want to subscribe to the social media um, hype, shall we say, that they've always had bad intentions to right. purposely make products that are going to make us sick mm. versus... No, they made a product that was stable and right. available right. and now we're only finding out that there's other consequences from it and we need to refine it um, is open up to the individual. I'm very much sitting in the place of I don't think they ever intentionally no. went to make a food product that was going to make mm. people sick because right. it's easy to eat and it contains mm. all these preservatives. It was always maybe done with good intention, but we often see things done in good intention that have had bad consequences. Right. Right? Yeah, and it's easy in sort of hindsight to look back, yes. but, but, you know, back then, if you were someone living in that era, then they may, these, these foods may have posed as a, a very helpful solution. That's right. From a food security mm. point of view and around the war and, and whatnot. Yeah. Fortification and of caveat. nutrients. And yeah. And the caveat being though, if at any point they had a hint or knew that there was a problem. And didn't tell us. Right. And that's where a lot of For the sure. research into industry influence on pharmaceuticals and food comes from. It's the question of did they know right. and if they did, at what point? And I think also there's been some trust issues with companies like Coca-Cola perhaps running studies to kind of shift the blame to exercise. Yeah. And yeah, to yeah. take a bit of attention off of their their products. So, yeah. um you know, it's there's there's certainly some reason I think to to sort of have lost a little bit of trust in the in the food system for yes. sure. For yeah. Sure. Um, but that's that's not saying that these companies can't be part of the solution. That's right. Well, the way we've established our food environment, they almost have to be, and and that's one of the challenges because it'd be nice to draw a line in the sand and go no. No, right. we, we know what's essential for a healthy diet. It's no processed foods and we've got to provide fresh eating vegetables and meats and whatever it is mm. that else that you might want from the minimally processed food barrel. But then the um, the logistics of that for a, a world of 6 billion people is yeah. right. quite difficult. Well, we've gone, we've gone deep into nutrition <laughs> yeah. early here given that the, yeah. the, the, the focus of, of this um, conversation was going to be more around yeah. ex exercise. But <laughs> we'll get back great. to no, I love it. <laughs> I, I think we we sort of jump into the exercise side of things yeah, yeah. and then 
I think we'll fall back into nutrition yeah. um, through that, no doubt. Um, I want to come back to the ketogenic diet. So <clears throat> I guess that the, the the topic for this conversation is the biochemistry of exercise and, and how this may influence your training program and health, how understanding the biochemistry of exercise may, may influence those things. Um, and I think that uh, most of us, you know, we've probably said it ourselves, I'm, I'm feeling full of energy today or I'm feeling low in energy. And I think we have a fair idea that we eat food that we've just been talking about and somehow we use that to create energy which sustains our life, um, allows us to pick up things and, and move our body, etc. cetera. Um, but perhaps we don't have a kind of full appreciation for what's happening at a cellular level and not to overwhelm people, but I think there is, there is benefit to understanding some of the things that are happening in terms of how we produce energy and then being able to use that information to perhaps influence our training or influence our lifestyle to get better outcomes. Um, so maybe we start here with a rather obvious question. What, what is energy? <laughs> <laughs> energy <laughs> and, 101. Yeah, Let's well, what, we throw out that word yeah, you know, yeah. every day. Like I said, we, we, we use it in our everyday language. But what does it actually mean from a physiological point of view? And how does our body sort of go about turning the uh, energy in an apple into the energy that our body can actually utilize? Yeah, yeah, sure. So when we go from a physiological perspective – we always ever think of energy as a, a chemical transfer. Um, so um, I, I, I've said a few times to people that there is no answer to what is energy. Nobody seems to have given one because whenever they talk about it, they only ever describe it by what it does, which is this capacity to do work, right? So we know we have light energy, thermal energy, chemical energy, nuclear energy. They're all talking about the same thing now if we talk about what they do and that is allows us to do things, but the mechanism by which they do that is very different, mm -hmm. right? So electrical energy is conducting electrons from one area to another, for example, right? Whereas light energy is the emission of these things called photons and what have you. When we talk about in our physiology system, it's chemical energy, which is quite varied in itself as well. It might be two atoms that are bound to each other by sharing an electron like a... a an oxygen and a phosphate molecule. Or it might be um, two atoms that are bound to each other because they've got uh, opposite but attractive electronic charges, like a positive and a negative charge to them, bring them together. Energy is the thing that's holding those atoms together. Mm -hmm. And when we think about from a metabolic perspective, we often think about this thing called Gibbs free energy, which is when you break apart those two atoms the force or whatever it was that we're calling energy that was holding them together gets released and that then is usually captured for something else to happen. Okay. So if you want to make your skeleton move, you need to make a muscle shorten. To make a muscle shorten, you need two proteins, one called actin, one called myosin, to cross over each other and for them to do that, you need energy and the energy specifically comes by ripping off a phosphate molecule from a molecule called ATP right. or a phosphate atom from the molecule called ATP. Yeah. So you ATP is this thing called adenosine triphosphate. So adenosine is just like a sugar group um, with a couple of nitrogens attached to it and it's got three phosphates attached to it. Mm. You rip one phosphate atom off, the energy that was holding it all together gets released 
that powers your actinomycin proteins to cross over each other. That shortens your muscle. Skeleton moves. Mm. Voila. Mm -hmm. And then if you want to relax it, you need to resynthesize that ATP. And then if you want to make another contraction, you need to burn another ATP. Right. I have a question yeah. relating to this. I was recently listening to a guest on, <clears throat> on Huberman's show who his, I guess, his claim around, say, resistance training, so when a muscle reaches failure, like yeah. true failure, you cannot get that actin crossover, right? He says that it's due to the temperature of the, the, the muscle, that how hot it gets in that muscle causes the failure. Yeah. But when I'm hearing you say that, it sounds like if we run out of ATP, we can no longer resynthesize it, we're unable to contract. So would failure training be we've run out of ATP on a local level? No. No. So we <laughs> <laughs> failed biochemistry. There we go. <laughs> so, uh, Drew, uh, I think it's around about the first lecture I point out to people that um, if, if, we, if, we, if, if we took a biopsy from your muscle at rest, and then at absolute failure, the amount of ATP that you've lost is probably only about 5 or 10%. Yeah. Uh, if you lose ATP, your cell effectively is dead, mm -hmm. right? So um, I think it's around about 60% ATP loss that you go into rigor mortis, right? And okay. so that's when you, you can't move at all, right? Um, the most obvious example being death, right? So there are safety mechanisms put in to make sure your ATP level doesn't drop. Mm -hmm. And that is all of your fuels for energy, phosphocreatine, adenosine, diphosphate, glucose, fats, proteins, ketones, all of those, their sole purpose is to be destroyed to make more ATP. Right. But what you do see then at failure is not a lot of ATP lost, but you actually have a lot of the byproducts of mm. ADP and AMP. Right. So that is now adenosine diphosphate. So that's the ATP with one phosphate removed, mm -hmm. and AMP, which is one, which is ATP with two phosphates removed. Mm -hmm. Right. So I, I'm not familiar with the show you're talking about, but I'm assuming what they're actually referring to is then what happens is you never get a hundred percent energy transfer. Right. There's always a little loss to the system. And in a metabolically inefficient system, the loss is always generated as heat. Mm -hmm. So with eccentric exercise or isometric exercise, the amount of ATP resynthesis is poorly coupled to like things like the electron transport chain and oxygen costs and what have you. So there's a lot of energy loss right. and mm. it gets hotter. Mm. And that's So heat. the less efficient the system, the more energy that's lost is heat. Yep. Does that mean someone who has less... Uh, efficient energy production in their cells would sweat differently? Oh, not entirely sure. The whole integumentary system has been a real failure in my reading. Okay. Um, whether or not your sweat rate is dependent upon the inefficiencies of your oxidative metabolism, I'm not entirely mm. sure. We'll but put a pin in that. We can yeah, come back to that. Come back. Mm. I, I, I might know a guy you can talk to okay. about that. <laughs> um, so, so you have this you have this loss of um, energy that that makes it hotter. And the other thing to keep in mind there is me metabolic systems. It's not um, it's not necessarily chance that certain reactions take place. So you need other proteins, functional proteins in your cells called enzymes, which make things happen. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you took ATP and just dropped it in a jar of water. It, it wouldn't just itself spontaneously break down into ADP and a free phosphate and release energy, right? It might over many, 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 many hours, days. So 
if you want that to break down to release energy, you need an enzyme to rip the phosphate off. Mm-hmm. Now, those enzymes work best at different temperatures. Okay. And then you can get to certain temperatures where they stop working well. Mm. And so there would be particular, there could potentially be these enzymes that are functioning best mm. when your temperature is around about this. Right. That right. then when it gets out of it is no longer as optimal. But a lot of that data is from lab stuff. Like it's huge jumps. This enzyme might be really efficient at 30 degrees mm. and not efficient at 40 right. degrees. But we don't see that kind of variance right. within your cell. Interesting. Right. But if you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, Inside Tracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. Um, I mean, creatine, for example, you mentioned creatine there, yeah. right? And that's been quite well studied to have some ergogenic benefit. Yeah. So is it is it possible that... Um, in a scenario where you didn't have enough creatine on board, yeah. can that be a limiting factor in terms of your ability to produce force? So, 
the um, the creatine story is an interesting one, right? So, because not everybody responds to it. Um, I'm a non-responder. I've volunteered for a number of studies to right. find that out. Is that, um, is that a big percentage of, of folks that don't respond? I'm trying to remember what it is. Hey, but it, it it's, big enough. Yeah, it's big enough. Right. Like not enough for it not to be financially viable, but enough for there to be people who have wasted their money on it for right. no effect. Gotcha. Put it that way. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, for some reason in my head, it's something yeah. around about the twenty percent range. But the key is that you need to have increased your cellular phosphocretin content by like 10 to 14% for it to have a benefit. Mm -hmm. And so some of us are just genetically already at our maximum phosphocretin content within our muscles. So no matter how much I eat, I just digest it out, Mm. grind it out. Um, And my my muscle phosphocretin content won't increase when I've been part of those Mm. studies. So is that dose dependent though? Like if you tripled the dose? No, I did did the maximum loading dose. Yep, that's just my threshold. Really? Yeah. So um, what we see there is, you know, if we take the creatine, for example, it's phosphocretin that's important. So you'll eat creatine and then when you get that into your muscle cells, if you're fortunate enough to be able to do that, then you'll phosphorylate and turn it into phosphocreatine. Mm -hmm. So that is creatine with a phosphate molecule attached to it. So its immediate role, when you've just broken down your ATP to make the actin-myosin contract, to make another ATP molecule, you can take the phosphate off phosphocreatine, stick it on the ADP immediately, right there yeah. at the exact site where the actinomyosin crossbridge is happening. So we typically will use that in the first few seconds of a contraction mm-hmm. point. Um, and that is until you get to a point where you've activated intermediate systems such as glycolysis or the adenylate kinase system and things like that. Um, or more importantly, then until you get to your more oxidative and using your mitochondria and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, now, you might burn through a fair portion, maybe 60% of your phosphocreatine in that first 30-second effort or so, um, and then these other systems should have kicked in right. um, and been making your ATP mm-hmm. for you, and then you can maybe replenish that phosphocreatine during your exercise or you hold on to the small bit that you've got mm-hmm. for your final burst. Got so. it. That's fascinating. I mean, that, that, that's why in particular in resistance training and power athletes mm. benefit from creatine, but you don't see endurance athletes, you know, necessarily loading on creatine to try to get that extra bit of benefit. So there's been a few studies though where people have looked at endurance performance because what we, what was seen, uh, I'm going to say early 2000s, um, everybody only ever thought of phosphocreatine as being important for the immediate energy system, that first five to 10 second burst or your last five to 10 second burst when you need to really increase intensity quickly. And so your metabolic demand for ATP is far greater than the rate at which you can make it from glucose and fats, right? And so you have this immediate energy system that covers that 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 time. Can I interject real quick? Yeah. Are we talking about the rate of actinomycin like what is the what is the limiting factor so you're saying like the first say five three seconds of a 100 meter sprint yeah right we're gonna rapidly contract muscle yeah so we need to have lots of atp lots of atp really quickly but is that responding to the speed of contraction of the muscle or the intensity like how do you how do you quantify the intensity of that output does that make sense so like when let's say you're going on on a long run and you want to save you need to sort of push like Tour de France the last bit of a race yeah yeah. you need a sprint yeah you've been going for four hours yes you you need to have some ATP available at the end so you can have that immediate sprint even though you're under fatigue yes 
What is what is it about that muscular contraction that's saying, okay, it's time to use the ATP? It's the rate at which you're doing it. Okay, so, so it's the speed of the contraction. Yeah, so right. you'll increase intensity and you'll either do that by increasing velocity or increasing force, right? right? And in some instances, you might be doing both. Okay. And so if you want to start contracting your muscle really quickly, then you need to have a lot of ATP available for it. Right. And the ATP will become limiting if if, well, if you're not replenishing it with any of your fuels, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so what we saw around about the 2000s was it's not just that immediate increase in intensity where you need this immediate um, use of phosphocreatine. There's a shuttle where, um, so you'll make, if you're burning glucose and fats in an oxygen replete condition, you're using mitochondria, you make ATP in the mitochondria, but the mitochondria aren't, directly at your actin, myosin, crossbridge where you need the ATP. Mm -hmm. So you've got to get the ATP from this area where you're making it to this area where you need it. ATP is a really valuable energy molecule in the muscle cell. And so there's lots of reactions that would love some ATP. So there needed to be a way in which we ensured the energy that was in the phosphate bond of ATP got to where it needed to. And so it was this phosphocretine shuttle that was discovered. Mm. And that is the enzyme that can take phosphate off phosphocreatine at the actin-myosin crossbridge, it's also in the mitochondria, mm -hmm. but works in the opposite direction, where it adds phosphate mm. to creatine to make phosphocreatine. And so what people tracked was, well, actually, you can make ATP in the mitochondria, but you turn it into phosphocreatine at the mitochondria, and then it can safely traverse the muscle cell to get to the actin-myosin crossbridge, and that's where it gets broken down to make ATP. Gotcha. And that's where it becomes more poignant then that, well, energy, it's not really even ATP that's important. It's right. what's it's holding the, bond, the yeah. phosphate bond together Got that's you. important. Yeah. Right. And that is what we don't know necessarily what it is. Wow. Mm. So if you're an endurance athlete, yeah. just to kind of round this out, yeah. is there benefit, let's say uh, a marathon runner, yeah. is there benefit uh, of going through your training period with saturated um, creatine stores yeah. and supplementing all the way up to the, to the event? Yeah, so the papers have, have used creatine for endurance events, have looked at a low dose. It's like, so, you know, you might typically do 25 to 30 grams a day for five days and then hit five grams a day for, sure. a, for a three-week period. Um, whereas in an endurance event, you don't necessarily need that loading phase. You could just have the five grams a day over a four to six-week period. Mm. And the idea then would be if you're a responder, mm -hmm. over that longer period of time, you should be able to just slightly increase that energy system. Mm -hmm. So during my PhD, we use this in rodents um, to manipulate the pancreas. So the system by which your pancreas responds to glucose to pump out insulin is all dependent upon ATP flux through glycolysis. Mm -hmm. So the pancreas senses glucose, burns it through glycolysis, makes ATP, the ATP shuts down a cell membrane that allows the release of insulin and away you go. Mm -hmm. Now, so what we did was we primed a whole heap of rodents with creatine. So absolutely no effect in the muscle because they're already at, at their highest load. But when we looked at the pancreas, these guys were pumping out two to three times the amount of insulin for the wow. same amount of glucose mm. that they were eating. Wow. This and is so interesting. From like a personal selfish perspective, yeah, yeah. I've got an interesting anecdote with creatine use in myself. Right. And maybe you have a biochemical answer for this. Go for it. But so when I started creatine for the first time ever, which was quite recently, maybe a year ago, yeah. my insulin sensitivity improved, my glucose tolerance improved. I was trending low way more often. Yeah. 
and I had to reduce my basal insulin. Yeah, right. I had to reduce my my insulin to carb ratio at meals. Yeah. And then I cycled off it and it sort of worsened a little bit. Yeah. And obviously I'm one person, so it's not the best experiment, but yeah. I've got a friend who's type 1 diabetic as well, who lives in America, Cyrus. And I said, have you ever tried creatine? Let me know how you go. He calls me a few months ago and he goes, mate, I started taking creatine and it's had the same effect. He's going low frequently. He had to yeah. reduce his insulin dose. And now but where this really sort of tricks me is we don't produce insulin. So what you're talking about is that, is that endogenous production of insulin, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? I don't produce insulin. So what, what effect, how is that creatine impacting my glucose levels or insulin sensitivity if my pancreas isn't even producing any? So, all right. So I was doing my PhD 1999 to 2003. And there was a paper that had come out in, I think it was 1991. And I'm, I'm going to unfortunately politically possibly get this wrong. I think it was out of Croatia. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the only paper, I mean, it's been a while since I looked, but it was the only paper at that time that had given creatine to type 1 diabetes patients. I haven't even seen this. And showed an impact wow. on their insulin levels. Because at that time we decided, once we saw the effect in rodents, we thought, oh, well, let's see if we can do this in some humans. Mm. And humans who typically eat a low creatine diet are vegetarians. So we recruited vegetarians, loaded them up on creatine. We didn't see an effect on insulin, but we saw an effect on glucose. Yeah. We published that paper. Mm. Wow. What was the effect that you saw uh, on glucose? I'm trying to re- I believe it was lower, but yeah, <laughs> I can't yeah, quite yeah. remember because... Yeah. Because then we applied for funding for a few years but never got it mm. um, on the basis that so our applications were, we got some spotted rodent data. There seems to be something in the human world that we don't quite understand. But if you gave us some money, we might be able to unpack a little bit more. We think creatine loading could impact insulin sensitivity and release mm. in diabetes patients, wow. you know, both type 1 type 2. It's fascinating. We never got any funding for yeah. it, so that just got parked and okay. it's sitting by the wayside. Yeah. But there could be two things that are happening to you here. There's either – so part of my feeling from the rodent data would be, oh, we've got data that suggests we can increase the amount of insulin you're releasing. But as you say – you shouldn't be technically producing but insulin. But I haven't checked my C-peptide for a while. Well, this is the thing, What right? if I've had that little bit of a nudge to my beta cells and I've got a, you know, a little bit that's pr- getting produced? Is that a possibility? I, I'm, I'm going to say yes because I never cross out anything until I've got an absolute no, okay. right? The alternative side of things as well, though, is creatine can influence cellular hydration status, right? right. So you can increase water of the muscle. Yeah. And when you increase water in the muscle, you can increase glycogen storage capacity. Right. And so if you can now also increase your capacity to store glycogen, that's going to put a drag right. on your blood glucose, yeah. right? Yes. yes. And so for all we know, mm. it's nothing to do with producing more insulin, Got but that. at the periphery, you've just increased your capacity mm. to absorb more mm. carbs. Right. It's also and, going to make you look nice and full. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. I, I guess that same mechanism can be said about resistance training, increasing muscle size. Yeah, you, you have a better glycogen storage capacity. Mm. It's the same kind of thing that we're talking about. So maybe it's this additive effect mm. of your resistance training plus I'm vegetarian, vegan. Yep. So, you know, vegans are often, right. would you call them hyper responders or just more ergogenic effects come from creatine? Well, there's a lower vegans? baseline level of yep. creatine right. to we're begin not. with. So yep. there is a um, a greater benefit if you're coming from a lower store. Yes, because yeah. the benefit that you get from it's dependent upon the amount that you've increased, mm-hmm. not an absolute That level. actually right. brings up right. a, uh, an interesting question that I have. What does this say um, about, so if we're saying that our, the body produces creatine, yeah. but an optimal level, say for performance or endurance training, is achieved through supplementation, um, 
I've heard some folks say that this is actually evidence that perhaps um, we should be eating about a kilogram of meat a day, to get or two, 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 two pounds of meat would get you there. What do you What do you think about that sort of concept? Getting your creatine levels up from with natural dietary sources, mm. you need to eat a lot. Yeah. Mm. I, and what's the calorie sort of trade off there? You know. And but also, I don't know if there's any guarantee that the creatine that you'd be eating in that food product is going to be what ends up within your muscle cell mm. as such as well. Well, I mean, most of the studies would be in supplements, right? So, yes. So you'd have to lean on the science and go, well, we, we know that creatine affects muscle creatine by X amount because of these supplements that they took. But can you extrapolate that to beef? I, I'd say probably not. But, it, but even then the, the protocols for creatine supplement studies, the creatine transporter needs insulin around. And so mm. to enhance its uptake. Mm. And so very quickly, it was always, don't just take creatine. You've got to take creatine with carbohydrate. And do it after your workout and there's a window. And, yeah. yeah. And the very first studies, you drank your creatine supplement in orange juice, mm. right? So it's not just in water and the like. So, yeah. and then it became, well, have your creatine supplement with some sugar mm. as well. And it was just to increase it. So I don't know, you'd want to make sure you had a fairly nice insulin spike from the proteins that are in that meat to also ensure that the creatine is getting in there, right? There's probably 0% of your audience eating two pounds of meat. So (laughs) It's it's a controversial point that I've seen made in other communities and I thought I may as well just throw it out here. I'd quite like to hear the debate for planetary health where somebody argues that we have to be eating meat for the purposes of creatine. Right, right? just just to optimise performance. Yeah. Yeah. that's you, you threw out quite a few different um, sort of uh, bits of terminology. Yeah, sorry. That's no, um, awesome. <laughs> and it's great, but like words like mitochondria, um, you spoke about energy systems, you mentioned glucose and fats, and I think maybe to tie all of that together. Yeah. So um, you spoke about ATP being this kind of, I guess, energy molecule or it's more the bond, but it's it's the molecule that allows us to then do work. Yeah. Um, so how does our body sort of utilize glucose and yeah. fats to actually produce this molecule yeah, of, yeah, yeah. of energy? And when would it preferentially use, say, more fats versus more glucose? Yeah, okay, brilliant. So the if we take a if we if we picture our muscle cell, we've got lots of structural proteins that keep it together. And then we've got these active mice and things that make it move to shorten or lengthen, depending upon what we want to do in our exercise. And we need to essentially find a phosphate molecule somewhere to add back onto ADP. So we teach, at least in this country, a a hierarchy of metabolic systems um, in which we can find where that phosphate molecule is. So the most immediate one is we can rip it off phosphocreatine and add it onto ADP. Um, alternatively, when you rip a phosphate off ATP and turn it into ADP, you can take two of those molecules and stick them together and you make another ATP molecule, an AMP. Now, the AMP is a little bit of a byproduct. It just keeps accumulating and we use that as an indicator of the metabolic stress. And if your cell's going into energy deficiency, you'll see lots of AMP. We can come back to that in a moment because mm-hmm. uh, that's a real important signal for why we adapt to exercise. So, but here, they're the two most immediate and they will be you know, matters of seconds from when the contraction occurs, right? Then we start realizing that those sources, uh, they can't last forever. 
And we start seeing that the ADP can also now stimulate other pathways. And we see that things like uh, or AMP more particularly can stimulate muscle glycogen breakdown. It can also stimulate the process of glycolysis, which is how we break glucose. All right, so glucose has absolutely no phosphate in it whatsoever. It's six carbons, 12 hydrogens, and six oxygens, all bound in a, in a hexagon mm-hmm. shape, for lack of a better phrase. But what it does have is lots of energy holding those carbons and hydrogens and oxygen together. And what we do through the process of glycolysis is we slowly rearrange that molecule and we rip it apart. And in doing so, we release the energy to find phosphate that's already in the cell to right. add to ADP. Gotcha. gotcha. So glycolysis is the name yep. for taking a glucose molecule yep. and using that to produce ADP and then ATP. Well, no, we don't produce ADP. We use the ADP coming from the work that your muscle's doing and we're just adding a phosphate yep. to it. Gotcha. And, but we're using phosphate that's already in the cell, but we're using the energy that's in the bonds of glucose to put those phosphates mm-hmm. onto the ADP. Right. So glycolysis technically is you take a glucose molecule, which is six carbons, 12 hydrogens, six oxygens, and you rip it in half into two smaller molecules called pyruvate, mm-hmm. which are three carbons. Come on. Come on, mate. I'm not, don't look to me. <laughs> three, don't look to mate, me. I taught you. Mate, it was 15 years ago. <laughs> three carbons, six hydrogens, and three oxygens. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so then uh, what, we, what we do with the pyruvate is, is open slather depending upon how efficient your energy systems are, right? So why, why I say that is oh, we, oh, there's at least three fates for pyruvate or four. Um, the first one we can discount, yeast cells turn it into ethanol. Mm-hmm. And that's how we make alcohol, right? Mm-hmm. So we just have a whole heap of yeast cells in a tub with a whole bunch of sugar. Mm-hmm. And as long as they've got no oxygen, they'll turn the pyruvate into alcohol. Mm-hmm. Within our human metabolic systems, you can turn it it's into It's a shame lactate. we can't do that, by the way. Make <laughs> well, alcohol. That's right. We turn it into lactate, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So the alternative would <laughs> at, at some point, our genetic system was when we run – do we want to get drunk or do we want to hurt? <laughs> and we chose pain. We, we, chose, we chose pain. pain right. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeast cells, they chose getting drunk. That's my mm-hmm. right. Um, so uh, what we then have is like they either make a lactate or they turn it into alanine if mm-hmm. you're breaking down branched-chain amino acids at the same time or we turn it into this thing called acetyl-CoA. Mm-hmm. And to do that, you need this other compartment called the mitochondria. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, the mitochondria is the part of the cell that uses oxygen to take all the energy that's in your acetyl-CoA molecule and convert it into ATP. So just to pause there yeah. at that point, so yeah. we can basically, we can produce energy outside of the mitochondria Yep. and and through that process, that's where we're going to produce lactate Yep. or we can alanine. go alanine. Yep. So not lactate. Oh, no, both. Lactate oh, or both. alanine. Yep. yep. Either or. Yep. Or we can take that glucose, which turns into pyruvate, and yep. then shuttle it down or acetyl-CoA yep. and then into this mitochondria. Oh, which... it, so it goes into the mitochondria as pyruvate mm-hmm. and then gets then converted into acetyl-CoA. And that's an important point it's for keto diets when we come to it, right? This is great. <laughs> no, yeah. really, I thought I'd give you a picture. Oh, so yeah. I might also just add, add a couple of little little things in there. So, so glycolysis... Is anaerobic by nature? Or oh, is it? I hate that phrase, Drew. Because there's always, anaerobic suggests no oxygen right. is around, right? But the cell's always in a bath of oxygen. Right, right. It's anaerobic in the sense that we don't use oxygen in the, in the whole process. Gotcha. Yeah. 
Okay, that's what yeah. I meant, by the way. Good. Yeah. <laughs> so then when we go into the into the mitochondria, we're talking about oxidative, so in the, an aerobic. With, with, so you were with, about to say aerobic glycolysis. I know, I know. <laughs> I that, that, that's the thing, right? So yes. I know it's semantics, but there's no such thing as anaerobic, anaerobic. glycolysis and, and so aerobic glycolysis. So oxygen, what's, what dictates whether you... Um, you, you have you, all the pathways. You, you produce it outside of the mitochondria versus going inside. Right. Yeah, it's, it's mass action. So uh, what we mean by that is uh, eight of the 10 reactions in glycolysis are what we call reversible. So the energy transfer for those reactions to occur is almost zero. And it just depends upon whether or not you've got the reactants available that the reaction goes first. So you put a lot of glucose into the cell and it goes and gets converted into the next stage of glucose 6-phosphate, and then that just falls into getting converted into fructose 6-phosphate because there's more G6P around. Mm. And then the next reaction is, oh, there's lots of that, so I'll convert it into this. Oh, there's lots of that, I'll convert it into this. And it just cascades down yeah. mm. into pyruvate when you force feed into it. Gotcha. Right? Mm. There's two regulatory pathways in there that need to be turned on for the whole thing to work, and they are sensitive to AMP and ADP. Right, so as long as there's an energy demand, then they those two reactions open up and the whole cascade occurs. Mm -hmm. There's no energy demand; those gates stay closed, and glycolysis won't occur. Okay, I might just try relate this back to like something a bit more practical from Go like an it. exercise physiology yeah. point of view. So, typically speaking, we think about glycolysis as a, as a faster burning yeah, process yeah, yeah. that allows you to sort of run a bit quicker or heart rate at higher intensity. So. We're thinking sort of shorter duration bouts of exercise, yep. say like HIIT training or sprinting. Glycolysis is going to be the main pathway because it's a quicker ATP resynthesis pathway. Is that is I'm that going to say to yes say? to an extent? Okay, right. So and we haven't yet. So we haven't even yet defined what what the other pathway is to produce energy. Yeah. We'll, yeah. We'll there. We'll so there. so I was just going to add on to that. So then we also have fats, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And fat also has absolutely no phosphate into it, mm -hmm. all right? So it's just a bunch of carbons and hydrogens. There might be one oxygen in there. That's right. it. And so it comes into the cell. It gets transported into the mitochondria as a fat molecule yep. and then gets broken down into acetyl-CoA okay. right. at the same molecule that comes from the end of glycolysis. So this is lipolysis. And that's, uh, well, lipolysis is the breakdown of fat from stored triglyceride. So okay. you've got stored fat and you break it down into fatty acids. That's lipolysis. Gotcha. And then the fatty acids will go into mitochondria and go through fat oxidation. Okay. Fat right? oxidation, yeah. which is the Krebs cycle, right? Uh, no, so Krebs cycle is how you take acetyl-CoA right. and convert it or break it down to reduce carbon dioxide and what we call reducing agents NADH and FADH2. Mm -hmm. That's all it is. So okay. Krebs cycle is you take acetyl-CoA and you rearrange the molecules on it to remove hydrogen atoms mm -hmm. with the electrons attached to it, mm -hmm. and in doing so, you produce carbon dioxide. Okay. That's all the Krebs cycle is. Okay. Yeah. All right. So let's let's compare just for the sake yeah. of trying to be practical. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a lot, it's a lot to take yeah, yeah, Right yeah. now, we're basically right. speaking Spanish. Like yeah, we need to listen to English. So glycolysis, high-intensity exercise, yeah. we're going to use that pathway. Yeah. It's, it's a more... What would you call it? Like a more rapid ATP resynthesizer? So I was coming or? back to your okay. question, yes. right? Now, the reason why that's important to point out, right? So you've got both glucose and fats giving you the exact same end product before we hit the Krebs cycle. Yep. Right? Acetyl-CoA. Acetyl-CoA. Right. That's right. So from a metabolic perspective, doesn't matter if you've got carbs or fats in there mm -hmm. 
to what I'm about to do to it is going to be exactly the same. Gotcha. Right? So what I do with it then depends upon this system called the electron transport chain. Yep. And that's where you're burning or consuming your oxygen. Mm-hmm. Right. So the rate at which you remove products out of the Krebs cycle depends upon the rate of which you're consuming oxygen. Mm-hmm. So that's your VO2 max or your gotcha. VO2 peak. And then the rate at which you feed into the Krebs cycle depends upon how quickly you can get acetyl-CoA from either glucose or, fat. or fats. Got it. Right? Now, just to add a little curveball because we'll come back to it later, yeah. ketones also make acetyl-CoA and so do amino acids. Okay. Right? So that all the main fuels that we use mm-hmm. all converge at that one point. Okay. And so when we think about what fuels we're using for your exercise, it all depends upon how quickly you can get fuels to that point. Mm-hmm. Okay. So is there any difference in terms of the speed at which you can take a fat yep. and create acetyl-CoA yeah. versus take a glucose molecule yeah. and turn that into acetyl-CoA? Definitely. There right? Is. And the, the major driving factor there is we can start getting energy out of, or we can start getting ATP out of glucose as soon as it enters the cell, but fat has to go into the cell and the mitochondria, yeah. and then there needs to be a demand for acetyl-CoA for it to get broken down, mm-hmm. gotcha. right? And if you're getting lots of acetyl-CoA from glucose, there's no need to break down the fat from it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So there's this thing, the glucose fatty acid cycle described in the 60s that all explains how glucose and fats compete against each other for that mm-hmm. provision of acetyl-CoA. So if we come back to Drew's question, your first 30-second sprint, yeah, by all means, is most likely getting fueled by a bit of phosphocreatine, a little bit of adenylate kinase, which is the ADP system, and glucose through glycolysis. Yep. Bam. Okay. We know that. Yep. However, if you decide for some silly reason you want to do eight of those sprints yeah. and have like a two-minute or three-minute rest in between, that eighth sprint is not necessarily being being uh, fueled by glucose. Okay. It's now being fueled by fat. Okay. Or more fat than what we had before. Right. Because what we see happening with the fuel systems is with the progression of time, what you've allowed now is there's been an immediate stress release, mm-hmm. right? So, bam, I'm sprinting. Yep. I need ATP. Where do I get it from? I get it from glucose quickly. Boom, 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 boom. And then you're in recovery. It's like... Cells like, what on earth was that? Like, if we're going to do that again, we need more systems available for us. Right. Mm-hmm. You've already had the epinephrine or adrenaline spike from the sprint. Yeah. One of those things is it causes lipolysis. Yeah. So you've just flooded your blood with a whole heap of free fatty acids. They need to go somewhere now. They're kind of in the muscle cell a bit. But it's like, oh, okay, hang on. We're not exercising anymore. Don't need to really use it, but they're floating around ready. Then two minutes later, you go for another sprint. Boom. Immediate energy demand, right. you use some glucose. Oh, but hang on, there's a little bit more fat around now and it gets pulled into the system. Gotcha. Right. right? So we have these blends of this of these energy systems that sort of back one another up. Yeah. yeah. And so then by the time you get to the fourth or fifth or sixth sprint, there's enough fat being converted through fatty acid oxidation to produce acetyl CoA right. that when you do that next sprint, Oh, there's not the immediate demand on the fast source of, glu- of, of ATP. Right? Really interesting. So we see the contribution of glycolysis to energy in repeated sprints dropping off. Reduce, yeah. So where does this 
where does all of this yeah. information sort of fit in? If you jump online, let's yeah. say you go on onto Twitter, yeah. you hear buzzwords like mitochondrial efficiency yeah, yeah, yeah. or metabolic health, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And and someone you know saying do this because it will improve your mitochondrial efficiency. Yeah. So yeah. I think I think I think we should define a little bit more what mitochondria actually refers to. You described yeah. what's happening there. Do you want, do you want the Twitter um, summary of what a mitochondria is? Yeah, go for it. It's just the powerhouse of the cell. That's powerhouse. It. Of the- That's it. It's, it ends there. No one knows what it actually is. That's the first slide on a PowerPoint. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the first slide of PowerPoint in like a first, second, and third year lecture, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, I hate it. I, know, I hate I know. that. We, we've got to give it more. I know. Okay. What do right. you wish yeah. folks on Twitter talking about the mitochondria? <laughs> what do you wish they appreciated about the mitochondria and what it is? Okay. I think first thing we need to appreciate is completely dynamic in that we can have more or less. It, the amount of mitochondria you can have in a muscle cell can drastically change. Mm-hmm. And it changes depending upon whether or not you're really using it. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and also, more is better. More, more is most definitely better. Okay. Right, there, there's, yeah, I couldn't, I would, would struggle to find you an article out there that says anyone with more mitochondria is not doing too well. Mm-hmm. Okay, because what we do know is, as we lose mitochondria, we have lots of metabolic health issues. Yeah. Mm-hmm. it's a hallmark of aging yeah. is reductions in right. mitochondrial efficiency, the inability to utilize your mitochondria appropriately for burning fats and carbs is a hallmark feature of type 2 diabetes and obesity. Metabolic syndrome. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, there's some data identifying them now, as particularly with multiple sclerosis as well, and certain other health-related conditions that occur because you've started buggering up your mitochondria. Yeah. Mm. The other thing is there's an interesting backstory, um, depending upon how much you believe the history of it of all there, it was actually a, a bacteria cell all on its own right that became in a symbiotic relationship with our muscle cells. Wow, I haven't heard that one. And yeah. and so mitochondria contain their own DNA right. for certain elements of how they work. So we have an ancient organism yes. within our cells. Yes. So there's this whole theory that the mitochondria, so that we were, our, our muscle cells were originally these anaerobic systems that couldn't fix oxygen or utilize them as an energy system. The There was these bacteria um, that fixed oxygen but didn't utilize mm. non uh, aerobic sources of energy. And at some point along the evolutionary chain, they merged together. Mm. Now, um, some of the arguments people have used for that is the presence of their own mitochondrial DNA and machinery to make more of them and their ability to just grow and, and decline with use and what have you. Mm-hmm. So within the mitochondria, they, they're effectively... They've got some DNA floating around, but they are why people call them the powerhouse of the cell is because it's the only component of the cell that combusts oxygen mm-hmm. and generates what our people argue is the maximum amount of ATP because you're using oxygen. Mm-hmm. So from a fuel system perspective, we always just bring it down to it's where all the enzymes for the Krebs cycle sits, also known as the TCA cycle, mm-hmm. also known as the citric acid cycle, and it's where this component called the electron transport chain and ATP synthase exists. It's also where we make all the free radicals that can cause oxidative damage, though, right. if you're not coupling oxygen properly. And I think that's where people mm-hmm. sit when they talk about uh, metabolic efficiency. Mm-hmm. So what should happen theoretically or technically, is there's an exchange. 
of hydrogen atoms and oxygen to make water. And in doing that, we make ATP. That's as simple as I'm going to be able to make it, mm-hmm. right? Now, to do that, there's a, there's a time where the oxygen molecule needs two electrons put on it. But by a little bit of a design flaw, the very last step can only stick one electron on at a time. And that's a design flaw because oxygen with one electron on it can be what we call a free radical, mm. which can then destroy things. It can break down cell membranes. It can interrupt metabolic systems. And that's where free radical damage is part of aging and inefficiencies, right? So if you've got a tightly knit, coupled, working, functional, efficient mitochondria, the time lapse between when that second electron comes on and you make a water molecule is Mm. negligible, right? Mm -hmm. However, if you have anything that disturbs the rate at which that process can occur, then you have an inefficiency. Right. So so if you lose mitochondrial efficiency, yep. you become inefficient yep. and you have more of these free radicals. Free radical damage, which is going to destroy cell membrane, which makes it harder to conduct potentials mm. and electricity. So w- what and is it that that helps or promotes greater efficiency that so that you're such that you're reducing those number numbers of free yeah, radicals so, and does that come back to the ability to oxidize fats is that all part of the same conversation well, yeah yeah so what do you need for mitochondrial health i mean the general take homes are all the micronutrients you find in vegetables maybe a bit of fruit and and, and in most of your um, minimally processed products that's why mm. the minimally processed food diets mm. seem to be more likely health-promoting. So it's more a matter of what shouldn't you have in your system that I think we have a better idea about. So we see these things called uncoupling proteins that get generated uh, when uh, you have nutrient deficiencies um, or you're not necessarily utilising the mitochondria um, function. So an uncoupling protein sits there and allows these hydrogen atoms to flow without having to interact with the oxygen molecule. Mm-hmm. And so that coupling is gone now, right? And that's when you get inefficiency. So yeah. if you've got a perfectly functioning mitochondria, hydrogen atoms can move, oxygen molecule sitting there with an electron, thank you very much, away we go, we've made ATP. Right. But there could be this other gate over here, an uncoupling protein, so the hydrogen atom can come in and go, well, I don't have to bind with the oxygen, I can just float mm. back out again. Mm. So the oxygen is sitting there for a little bit longer, so that lag for it being a free radical is longer, and then we have this Got issue. You. Now, those uncoupling proteins, they get promoted by ultra-processed diets. Um, for a very long time, uh, it was linked to high-fat diets, but it's more likely the um, polyunsaturated inflammation, uh, polyunsaturated fats promoting inflammation. So it's more the inflammatory molecules that can come in and generate the inefficiencies. Mm-hmm. So... What so we, wait, let's pause on that. Yeah. Because I think that might be a bit controversial. Oh, mate, go back. How many episodes was it? To the- I think, yeah. Well, I mean, for example, let's let's take, I don't know, fish, for example. Oh, yeah. Which are rich in, in, in polyunsaturated fats, right? Yeah. But most of, the, most of the data suggests that they're associated with improved health. Yeah. So um, I guess, is it is it the inclusion of polyunsaturated fats in the diet or is it... Um, the types of food that some polyunsaturated fats are found in. Uh-huh. I guess my question is, is it them inherently or is it the fact that a lot of ultra-processed foods contain a lot of, say, ingredients um, that 
that have omega-6 fats, yeah. but also have a number of other inflammatory properties to them. Um, because we seem to have this debate online and amongst health professionals where, um, you know, one side, just to get yeah. you up to date, I guess, with with the debate, because we, we had a, a debate on this show. Um, one side would say that omega-6 fats are inherently um, inflammatory and problematic. And then the uh, counter to that is that no, they're essential fats and are not inherently inflammatory. But sure, if you're getting your omega-6 fats in ultra-processed foods, then that's going to be problematic. Yeah, good, good one. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know if I've just I don't know if I've just thrown you in the middle of a massive debate. Oh but yeah, you, you no, no, look, because I because that debate started like oh, about 2012, 2013. It really ripened up there, mm. and at that time, I thought I'd dip my toes in and see what everybody was banging on about, mm. um, and then promptly kind of just left it all right. alone because for me, it was looking like <sighs> yes, true. If if you're getting okay, so from what I could gather. The context of the omega sixes just coming from bad foods is related to the analysis of the diet histories from things like the Harvard Nurse Study or you know all those epidemiology studies from the sixties and seventies that people use to say, oh, polyunsaturated fats cause heart disease or are bad for you and pro-inflammatory. And then when you go and have a look at the foods that people were getting them from, it's like, oh yeah, it's like all well, these ultra-processed meats and and sure. what have you. Whereas your, your fish example that you started off with a highly, uh, a more likely omega threes, mm. and then there's the whole debate of oh, it's the ratio of omega sixes to omega threes mm. that's important. Mm. Um, and if you, so if you then were to supplement a ultra processed food with omega three oils, right. do you counteract counter, that? Yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's, I guess if we just zoom in though, let's yeah. let's forget all that for a moment. Yeah, but from your. Um, understanding of the mitochondria yep. and say mechanistic style studies that have looked at how a polyunsaturated fat affects mitochondrial efficiency. Yeah. Is there, it sounds like what you're saying is there is some evidence that polyunsaturated fats can have a negative effect on the mitochondria. Certain ones, that's right. And that's the other thing, right? So, uh, a, so a fat can be anywhere from four carbons long to like 30 carbons long. Mm. And then it will be polyunsaturated. That's simply, so saturated means that Every electron in the chain of that fatty acid is saturated, is used up in a carbon or a hydrogen bond. That's mm -hmm. it. A, an unsaturated fat means that somewhere along that chain, there wasn't an absolute fixed or saturated bond. Mm -hmm. And so between two carbons, you might find it sharing two bonds. And that will be, if it only occurs once in the chain, that's a monounsaturated fat. If it occurs twice or more, it's a polyunsaturated fat. And then depending upon where on the chain depends yeah. upon whether it's omega-3 or omega-6, sure. right? So what we could be having the issue over here is an omega-6 polyunsaturated fat that is X carbons long is particularly damaging mm. versus an omega-6 polyunsaturated fat, which is only this kind of long, yeah. right? And to assume that they're all going to be particularly detrimental is, is a question that needs to be asked. But we do know that there are certain omega-6 polyunsaturated fats that promote an inflammatory state mm -hmm. right. when you consume them. Right. Okay. Now, and so what studies are they? Are they kind of like certain animal studies? No, no, I'm, no, I'm, no, I'm, no, I'm genuinely yeah, yeah. interested in, no, in no, what no. this so is. So. There's, there's human ones. There's, there's, um, so I was I was working with a group a number of years ago where we reviewed the literature, and it was interesting. Um, 
completely different question, but it relates to this. Women consuming, in human studies, women consuming omega-6 polyunsaturated fats or diet high in omega-6 polyunsaturated fat and the inc- higher incidence of asthma in their offspring. Right. And, and so that was, they differentiated between ultra-processed foods with omega-6 no. and like hemp seeds or something. No, no. no. See, and that's the thing, right? <laughs> it's using diet histories right. from yeah. the studies in the 80s right. and the 90s. And so you've got that whole okay. mess So there's there. a caveat, there's an asterisk next to it. <laughs> yeah, 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 right? Okay. So, but uh, when we think of like olive oil, olive oil's got, a bunch mm. of omega-6 polyunsaturated right. fat in it, right? Great health outcomes. And, and it's the hallmark of the Mediterranean mm. diet and as long as you're not cooking with it over right. a certain temperature or mm. whatever, right? So I'm not a blanket, oh, mm. no, right. all omega-6s are going to be bad for you mm. um, and all omega-3s are going to be good for you and all saturated fats are okay or not depending upon what paper yeah. comes out this mm. week. Um, but there is evidence to show certain omega-6 polyunsaturated fats more likely to be pro-inflammatory. Now, from the mitochondrial perspective, what that means is there might be more of this thing called tumor necrosis factor alpha floating around or this other thing called monocyte chemoattractant protein 1 around. And what that means is within the cell where those molecules are found, you'll have a lot more um, of your immune cells, such as these things called macrophages, that then reside they live and they then start generating lots of other pro-inflammatory mm. molecules, mm. interleukin, cytokines, mm. things like that. And when those are getting produced, then you start seeing mitochondria breaking down. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So a um, couple of things. I yeah. think we put a pin in, in the omega-6. I want yeah, to come yeah. back to that. Yeah. I'm going to send you a paper, a review by a scientist. I think his name is Philip Calder. Okay. Um, it was a recent review cool. that I read and it was about some of this stuff on inflammation, which I think is interesting. But of course, there's a lot of nuance in it. And um, so maybe we can come so, back to that. And, and, and with that, if we think about things, so the, the example I think of, there's a Sydney Diet Heart study. Right. And the polyunsaturated fat that they put all of these men on to was safflower oil. Mm-hmm. And because it was supposed to help them for their cardiovascular disease risk. And it made conditions worse for them. Mm. Now, we don't use safflower oil anymore. Right. But it's an yeah. omega-6 that was... That one came up in the debate. Mm. Oh, did it? Yeah. There we go. And I think there was a... There's an asterisk that's... A slight asterisk on that study. Yeah. This is, this is fascinating. Uh, I love this. Yeah. Well, the, the margarine that was used, the safflower margarine, yeah. that was... What was the brand name again? Um, I can't recall, but it had a high percentage of trans fats. Yeah. yeah. So it's kind yeah. of... Was, Can you make was, a trans-fat-free margarine yeah. with safflower or, 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 or was that a confounder that, that yeah. actually influenced the results of the study? Yes. Because trans fats are going to definitely affect cardiovascular right. disease risk. So maybe the folks that had were randomized to this omega-6-rich um, intervention arm, if they were unknowingly consuming trans fats because at the time it was sort of established but it wasn't out of the food supply right. yeah um then you know it may have confounded the study it's interesting because like the la veteran study which yes. also came up in that debate yeah, yeah, yeah. the complete opposite results you know they had they were the intervention arm had a blend of corn um safflower uh three or four different uh oils and significantly lower heart disease. But didn't they have increased cancer risk? They they did, but it yes. was very small. 
yes. relative to the, the improvement in cardiovascular disease yeah. events, right? So, the, yeah, I think the primary outcome was cardiovascular events, but there was definitely something to do with cancer there. I think that yeah. came up in the debate it did as well. Come up in the debate, yeah. yeah, so there was a higher rate of cancer development in the intervention group yes. than in the control group. But again, it's, it's like, I know, 80 people or something like right. that. Yeah. Um, but what we're doing here is we're falling into the hallmark trap that nutritional science has done for the last 50 years that we need to really change. And it's, it's not about the fat and it's not about mm. the sugar. It's about when we eat the foods and it's the interaction between the two, it, yes. right? Mm, yeah. And the quality and, of the food, the overall dietary pattern. Yeah. 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 And, and we can feed a high-fat diet to a rodent and it can be quite all right. Mm. Um, but we can give that same fat diet with sugar water, bam, the animal's sick. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and so how the interaction in the metabolic system occurs is what we have to yes. unpack and keep into context. I mean, that's something we wanted to talk about today was, again, it's probably another sort of buzzword or throwaway term, but metabolic flexibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's thrown around mm. by so many different sort of diet tribes. Yeah. We want to be metabolically flexible. We want yes. to have the ability to utilize different fuel sources at different times when we need it. Is there a way for us to improve our metabolic flexibility? Is there a sort of a dietary pattern way to do it? Is there a way that we can do it with exercise? Because again, let's just rewind a little step back. Yeah. So you mentioned we can actually increase the number and function of mitochondria. Yes. Right. And we were talking yeah. about, we were trying to figure out, is that where we were? Yeah, how do we? Yeah, we need, to, we, need to, we need to zoom in more on mitochondrial yeah, efficiency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's nail that because we'll come back yeah. to the metabolic flexibility. Okay. But if we can improve our function and number yeah. and actually proliferate mitochondria. Yeah. What are the main stimulus or the biggest mm. stimulus or levers that we can pull? And how would that? you measure it? So like if, if we're talking about ways to improve it, yes. is there an objective way for someone listening right now who yeah. goes, you know what, I'd love to know how my mitochondria are going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Nice. <laughs> like, yeah. And, and then maybe uh, implement certain things in their lifestyle and be able to objectively monitor progress. Yeah, good. That last one's going to be a tough one that we might come to. Without without doubt, in my for my read, the number one stimulus for increasing mitochondrial content mm. is movement and physical activity. Right? Yeah. So yeah, yeah, so we know that the mitochondrial density of a sedentary individual will increase if they do any form of training. Yes. All right, um, and that's from biopsy mm. studies. And Even if you're on the Twinkie bar diet. Uh, yeah, yeah. 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 The, okay. the physical activity stimulus, and that is because coming back to, I, I put a pin on the AMP molecule, right? Yeah. And that is. We've got a few pins. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. I'm keeping track <laughs> so of the So many browsers here, right? open right now. Yeah. <laughs> we are, Have we lost everyone by this <laughs> No, 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 no. Everyone, I can feel them here. They're here, I, they're here I was about to do what I did in my lectures. Yeah. So this is how my lectures would. If you're would, still listening right now, <laughs> yeah. you may be the only person. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what I would do in my lectures often, because at this point Drew and his friends would look at me with their glazed eyes. Drew was asleep. Right? I wasn't there. And, uh, and I'm like, when, when you're lecturing in a room with 100 people or so, you can feel the atmosphere just disappear, <laughs> right? And you're like, I've lost everyone. <laughs> and then I'd be like, all right, stop. If you haven't understood a single word I've said up until now, cool. Come back in. Control, alt, delete, restart. Okay. Let me just recap for you. Okay. Well, I've, I've, turned, <laughs> yeah. I've turned a blank page here. I've cleared the browsers. Yep. Yeah. Forget all about it. All of that was not useful for what we're about to talk about. Okay, we're going to start again. New yeah. topic. The new topic, the question is, how do I make more mitochondria? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Done, yeah. right? Okay. <laughs> we're on. Okay. We're back. Movement. Yeah. Physical activity. What is it about movement that makes more mitochondria? You... 
every time you contract your muscle, you burn this thing called ATP, but more importantly, you make a molecule called AMP. Mm -hmm. And that's what accumulates. Okay. And AMP stimulates another protein called AMP kinase. Now, this protein, its sole function in life is just to stick phosphate molecules or atoms mm -hmm. onto other proteins. And when it does that, it activates this other thing. We call it PGC, right? More technically, PGC one alpha. Doesn't sound very PG to me. No. <laughs> yeah, I'm only using the abbreviation because yeah. with my with my sporadic speech impediment, yeah. I can't say the full word. Okay. How dare you? Give it a go. <laughs> try it. Try it. <laughs> no. Okay. We'll, no, no, we'll no. put a pin in that yeah. as well. <laughs> okay. So, what the PGC does is it then turns on a whole heap of other molecules that can bind to the DNA in your cell to make more proteins. Okay. And some of the proteins then that get turned on are all the ones that make more mitochondria and make more Krebs cycle enzymes. Gotcha. Mm. Okay. So every time you move and contract a muscle, yeah. you generate a little bit of this molecule that then tells this other protein to go and make Go into the DNA, go to the DNA and make more mitochondria. Okay, mm. this and is that, interesting. That's the signal. Yes. That's your training signal. So AMP is a signal. Yeah, is a, is, it's just like a cellular message. Like it's the message it, to we need beautiful. more mitochondria. Mm. Yeah. Is there a different um, a difference in that signal and the strength of that signal in terms of the type of exercise was, that yeah, you're doing? I was about to say yeah. that. Yeah. Great question. Yeah. Great question. <laughs> this is what the listeners are here for. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Right. Okay. So you make. AMP, if you are relying far more on that immediate energy system, yeah. not the mitochondria. So right? talking the glycolytic. Yeah, phosphocreatine, phosphocreatine and glycolysis, okay. right? Rapid, yeah. They are the energy systems that you use when your muscle cell is under high stress that it's not used to because <laughs> it means that you need more energy quickly. So if you're just doing a jog around the park you're not really sending that signal. That's right. So the amount of AMP you make is dependent upon intensity, mm -hmm. right, for yourself. So um, if you're going for a jog and it's the first time you went for a jog, that's really intense for you. Right. So you'll make heaps of AMP, right? <clears throat> right. So let's say you decide to go out for a six-minute K pace, mm -hmm. but you've never jogged before. That's quite fast for some people. Yeah. But if you only ever stay at a six-minute K right. pace, you won't generate any more AMP and make any more mitochondria. So you sort of cap that mitochondria. That's right. So the more mitochondria you have, yep. the greater work slash intensity output you need to do to increase that number. Again. Well, that's right. Yes. Because you'll get to a point. So the AMP is your stress signal. Yep. It shows that your cell is in energy deficiency. And therefore, you need to kick in a structure that's going to make sure you don't get into that stress again. Gotcha. And so that's your training response, right? Yeah. So if you don't continually right. increase your intensity, you don't continually increase that stress and put that signal right. there. So yeah. it's an adaptation to say, we need more powerhouses. So yes. next time we do this, yes. we're going to be better equipped. Exactly right. And, yeah. yeah. So when you think about it, um, from I'm hard. I'm, I'm still trying to think of a home test for this, right? right? But the way we see it in the lab is we'll have a look at how much oxygen you burn 
for a fixed amount of work and how long it takes for you to get to a steady state. Yeah. So what I mean by that is… is test style… Well, well, we'll put you on a bike. Yeah. We'll set it at 100 watts. Yep. We're measuring how much oxygen you're consuming through a face mask. And we'll see that… Well, we, we used to do Douglas bags. We, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We don't do Douglas bags anymore. Thank God. All of that training We've that we on. taught you on, it's just useless Filling garbage now. bags with oxygen and carbon dioxide. <laughs> Wait, yeah. What are we doing? Dipping it out and measuring yeah, the measuring volume. It. Don't let any slip out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no. Like, now we just hook you face up. Face mask. Done. Digital. Straight into a computer. Pumps see the graph in real time. Yeah. Yeah. So VO2 max test would be a good test for this. Well, we don't even need to do a VO2 max test. A VO2 max test will tell you your maximum capacity to get mm -hmm. there. But if we want to just have a look at what your oxygen use is, 100 watts, and we might see in someone who's never done any exercise or is you know, very mildly active, it might take them two minutes before the oxygen cost of doing 100 watts is reached and reaches a plateau. Mm -hmm. right. And just for someone listening who's not familiar with that, 100 watts is the power setting. Yeah, that's right. That's the on intensity. The, on their yeah. bike or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Power output four. Right. Something like gotcha. that, right? On a bike that might go up to 20. You're right. Sure. Yeah. It's fairly low. We're talking low intensities here. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. For most people. Yes. It depends on who you are and what your fitness mm -hmm. level is. But 100 watts for most people is fairly low. Like, yes. Like, uh, for context, uh, I mean, a Tour de France rider, they're cranking out. 400 plus yeah. the hours. Yeah, you know? so I, I look, I, to be fair, I'd probably go 50 watts is low. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. Um, but if we take someone and we've exercised, trained them for four weeks and we put them back on that bike at 100 watts again, mm. what we'd find is the amount of oxygen they need to burn for the 100 watts is exactly the same, but they get there quicker. Gotcha. And it might only take them 30 seconds now to get there. Mm -hmm. Right? And so the stress to the system is reduced. And so it just stays there. You've got no more adaptive response. Mm -hmm. So until you increase the intensity, you won't generate more of that aim. So you're saying that that could be an indicator of their mitochondrial health improving. So four-week training program, they come back in, same test, 100 watts, they get there quicker. Yeah. When you say they get there quicker, because yep. that could be interpreted a couple of different ways, hmm. what do you mean by that? So, well, you the, the test is go. Like I've got a bike and immediately you're at 100 watts and you're there... <laughs> Right. Like that in day one, and it takes two minutes before you're like, it's like steady state. Okay, I'm here. Yeah, right. Yeah. Whereas four weeks later, again, it's boom. You're at 100 watts. You're like, Ooh, okay, I'm there, mm -hmm. and you're just sitting there. So it's, it's like the that. time till you're sort of cruising. Yeah, and, and we're looking at oxygen at the same time. That's right. We're looking at that line of what where it plateaus at at 100 watts. Yeah, because yeah. the amount of oxygen you burn for the intensity will be the same for everyone. Yeah, mm -hmm. because the the power to the contraction to get 100 watts is the same for everyone. Right. It's just for some people, that's the most their muscle can work. Yes. But for other people who are trained, it's more capacity. Very small for them. Right. So there's one of your take home tests, though, right? Mm. You always set yourself the same task and find and measure how long it takes for you to go, this feels easy now mm. or this feels comfortable. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you go, all right. I've got an oval near me and I'm going to do, I'm going to start and I'm just going to jog one lap. And if by the time you've gotten to the end of that lap, you're still like, oh, that was hard, I'm stopping, then you know that you haven't reached your mitochondrial capacity yet, mm. right? You haven't reached that steady state. But you'll have done enough stress so that the next time you do that jog, it might be slightly easier. Mm. You might find that now, 20, 30 metres before the end of your run, oh, actually that felt a little bit easy. Right. right, And you might go, I'm not going to do another lap, 
but next time maybe I will. Mm. And it's those kind of indicators to you. Mm-hmm. So uh, we always measure RPE, the rate of perceived exertion. It's often a, 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 a very accurate and simple and cheap yeah. indicator of training intensity. It actually blows my mind how mm. simple that scale is and how well it works. Yeah. Yes. It's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, there's the two. There's this, what is it, six to 20 scale and there's the, the, the zero to 10. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it really does correlate nicely with intensity and, yep. and, and difficulty yes. for people. Yeah. Well, well, so your perception of effort is, yeah. it, it's the clearest indicator. So for the same power output, yep. 100 watts, yep. the RPE drops. Yes. That's right. Right. It but, becomes easier, yep. relatively easier for you to perform that exercise. Yeah. Yeah. But the oxygen cost is, is the, the same. same. Yeah. Right. But what happens now is you've got more mitochondria, so you get there quicker. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Got you. So just just one other thing to, to kind of double click on here. So I think that someone listening that's interested in their performance yep. would be like, amazing, big tick. Great. I can improve my performance yep. by increasing mitochondrial density. Yeah. And you explained how to do that. We, we may delve deeper. We'll see how we go. Um, but I'm, I'm interested in, in sort of how does having more mitochondria actually translate just to better overall health and, say, longevity? Yeah, yeah. Great question. So, <laughs> so if you've got more mitochondria, it's more likely then that you've got a greater capacity not to produce these free radical molecules that we know are going to go around, destroy membranes and increase the rates of aging and things like that. They also interfere with energy transfers. So you've got better energy coupling or efficiencies, as they say. Um, but also what you're doing is you're reducing the stress I'd argue you're reducing the stress on all the other metabolic systems, right? So more mitochondria around means that, and in the world of metabolic flexibility, it means that you're running more of fat in fasting, Mm -hmm. right? But it also means your capacity to shift fuels in times of different stresses is greater, Mm -hmm. right? If you've got no mitochondria around, all you've got is glycolysis, Yep. right? If you've got mitochondria around, you've now got a choice. Mm. I can do glycolysis, I can do fats, I can do ketones, gotcha. I can do proteins. That's the flexibility. Right? That's your flexibility. So when you see someone with metabolic syndrome and you, you throw them on a bike yeah. at a low wattage, yeah. they tap into glycolysis rapidly. Well, they, they're already in glycolysis in, more often than not. So right. an individual even, even at, at baseline, at breast. Yeah, so um, the traditional papers of metabolic flexibility, one of the hallmark indicators were I bring you in after an overnight fast. If your RER, your respiratory exchange ratio or your RQ, RQ, your respiratory quotient is is over 0.9, you're burning burning carbs, man. You're not burning any fat at all. VCO2, VO2 ratio, right? That's right. Over 1 or or 0.9, glucose, you're a glucose burner. Yeah. You're probably going to have lactate as a byproduct. Yeah, yeah, more likely. Less than 0.9, Easier to burn fats. You've sort of got more of that. You've got a little bit of a mix, yeah. Okay. The, the hard, fast rules are we want to see you somewhere in the po- high 0.7s. Point point yeah. Yeah, yeah. right? Um, if you're in the point eight, there might be a little bit of protein burning going on in gotcha. there as well, right? Yeah. Um, and so we would bring you in after an overnight fast and already at that point we're going, all right, you've got a system that's running on carb. And then we could put you on a yeah. bike. And there might be a subtle decrease in RQ as you yeah. start burning more fat, but it won't be as pronounced as somebody who's metabolically flexible. Gotcha. And so the current... This current, makes me laugh. Too. <laughs> we, we've been geeking out hard on like <laughs> testing our lactate 
during you know moderate intensity mm. workouts. So Simon got a lactate meter. And we went nice. to the, we went to the gym the other day. We got on a bike. We had another friend there, and at 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 rest, <laughs> I don't want to name and shame, but a friend of ours, Jeremy. He's lactate. What was it? It must 20. have been. It was no, 20, no, 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 no. I think it was 12 at rest, 12 millimoles per liter. So you want to be something. around one, right? Or lactate at rest. Yeah, and yeah. He, he like was at point, 20. Point was something at, to one. Point, point 0.9. Yeah. yeah. So we measured at rest. I mean, I don't want to embarrass Simon, yeah. but I was better than, than yeah, Simon. But I rest. would expect you to be better than, than me, given your type of training. But it, it definitely inspired me to actually. Yeah. So, so we measured resting lactate. Yeah. I was around one. Simon, you were two or three. Jeremy was maybe outside of that. I was 1.9, man. Okay, 1.9. Sorry, sorry. No, okay. Just to clarify, it wasn't We three. then did, um, I think we did like- <laughs> No, I think I was 1.3 actually. Okay, we're just fabricating numbers yeah. now. So that's I was, what I was, we're doing. I, was, I, was I imagine like that at 1.1 1. 1 the other like, yeah. couple of weeks ago and I was freaking out. Yeah, like, yeah, what's yeah. going on with you yeah. guys? We need to be, yeah. Anyway, yeah. We, we got on a bike for 20 minutes and we yeah. did sort of like a talk test. We, yeah. Three of us- Nice, easy pace, what felt like what we'll call colloquially zone two, which we can get into in a second. Moderate intensity, continuous, steady state cardio. We did 15, 20 minutes, easy pace. We checked our wattage. We were all very similar. We all said, let's hold about a 150 watt. Yeah. Did 20 minutes, got off the bike, retested. I was the same. I I literally Mm. had not moved, which my, my sort of assessment of that was that the intensity was so low that I didn't need to tap into glycolysis. I didn't have any lactate mm. as a byproduct that I was using lipid or fat oxidation. That was my assessment of it. You can correct me in a minute. I feel like you're and about to- And to tie back to your story, that, <laughs> oh, that, would, that wouldn't be a strong enough signal to produce AMP to, no. then, to then say- he produce, needs to make more, mitochondria. He needs more yeah, mitochondria. Yeah, yeah. The, the intensity was too low to get that AMP signal. Okay? Yeah, you probably got a little bit floating around, but, but it's not, not enough stimulating to say, mitochondrial hey, biogenesis. Yeah, right. probably enough to turn on glycolysis because mm. AMP also mm-hmm. does that. Mitochondrial biogenesis. Yeah, did you like okay. that? Yeah, yeah. Nice. nice. That, yeah, you, yeah, you worked that one in nicely. <laughs> yeah, <thank you. laughs> so we, we all checked our lactate. Which means um, making mitochondria. Yeah, exactly right. Genesis, <laughs> creation, yes. bio, yeah. Uh, Very clever. Yeah. <laughs> So the, a couple of the other lads had an increase, slight increase in lactate. Mm. Yeah, lactate. Um, Jezza was Jezza like tripled. In, I've in named the, him. <laughs> I already named him Jeremy. <laughs> okay. So he like tripled. I'm going Jeremy in the lab. At some point. <laughs> He's never done cardio in his life. He's a, yeah. he's a special guy. Yeah. <laughs> then we got back on the bike and we did high intensity. We did oh, yeah. thirty on thirty off for four minutes. We followed oh, yeah. like a protocol mm. that you generally see in exercise physiology yep. studies, and we retested. Oh, yeah. Jeremy was. 20 plus, mm. you were 10-ish, I mm. can't remember. And I went up to like, say, six. Yeah. Right? What was interesting was we all held the same wattage. So we all said, okay, let's go 30 on, 30 off. Yeah. Mm. At 450 watts, I think we held for four minutes. Okay. We were looking at each other's bikes. We were all in mm. that slot. And then we retested. We all had these very different responses. Yeah, yeah. So my question to you, and you can correct me on my yeah. previous <laughs> <laughs> assessment. I probably will. Yes, please do. <laughs> Is that an indicator of mitochondrial efficiency? Is that an indicator of fitness level what is it about the three individuals in our little study that we made at the gym yeah that resulted in such differences in lactate levels i love the same lactate as a molecule okay it's mm. fascinating so it wasn't i don't need to refund the uh the Device. lactate tester god no hold on to it hold yeah. on to it and in actual fact so um i, I've, I <clears throat> just have a new phd student who started this month and their first project is going to be bringing in a bunch of people in the lab specifically to measure their metabolic flexibility during exercise and their lactate threshold. Cool. Because mm. there's this theory out there that the point at which you have lactate threshold 
is also the point at which you switch off fat burning during right. exercise right. because lactate specifically inhibits lipolysis. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to test that. Yeah. Right. And, and this that right there is the premise of, of zone of two. Of zone two. Yeah. This yeah. is exactly why we sort of a lot of endurance athletes are like obsessed about zone two. Yeah. Because they feel like if you're training at at intensity that they call zone two, which yeah. is roughly, let's just say 65, 75% mm. of your max heart rate or heart rate reserve, yeah. you are maximizing fat oxidation. Yeah. You're improving your mitochondrial health. Mm -hmm. health yeah. Um, and that you're at your sort of maximal aerobic function. Mm. Yeah. And they would test that by measuring at what point do they go over two millimoles per liter of lactate and yeah. they use that as an indicator of, okay, that's the lactate threshold. I should sit just below that. Yeah to improve the ability to oxidize fats. Yeah. That's the theory. So as far as I can tell you, I think there's like four papers that have looked at it. Mm -hmm. And so the hard science on it just isn't there. The theory is really neat, mm -hmm. right? But and in actual fact, um, I wrote one of the papers that put out a potential mechanism for why lactate would inhibit fat oxidation. But the problem is we haven't had funding mm. since to follow it up. So there's a particular protein receptor that we think, well, we know in fat cells exists and is sensitive to lactate. Mm -hmm. And it's the way in which you turn off fat breakdown during eating because fat cells make lactate and it binds to this protein, which then turns off fat breakdown. Mm. So during eating, you're just storing right. all your fat. Oh. Now, what nobody has been able to show yet is whether or not that protein exists in skeletal muscle. Gotcha. Now, if it does, then... You've got you've got the theory for that mechanism mm, to work. Right. So that's what we're hopefully. What, we'll what doesn't quite make sense to yeah. me though is that at that zone two intensity, right? Because often when people are talking about zone two, mitochondrial density comes up, but it it doesn't sound like that would be of AMP. high enough intensity to get the AMP they signal to exactly. lead to this biogenesis mitochondrial. No, biogenesis. but you might not need to. You might or so. Getting to that point, you'll have made all the mitochondria that you want. And then you just get them working more just, efficiently. Yeah. So it might be that they, they have the potential to make more mitochondria, but they're just not. Mm. And right. they've got enough for what they think is meeting right. their metabolic demand yeah. and need, right? But so, so you can kind of hit this from two angles then. So you can actually, from a training protocol point of view, you can have the high intensity stuff to increase the mitochondrial density, but then this lower intensity exercise. To, to keep the machine... The gears Prime. Yeah. The gears. Yeah. So I'll tell you what, my, so part of my problem with this, that that whole context, before we get <laughs> yeah. to your lactate measures, is when we look at maximal fat oxidation rates, mm -hmm. so they can range anywhere between 0.2 grams per minute up to about one and a half grams per minute in yep. an individual. And the thing that really drives that is habitual diet, right? Mm. Now, if you have even just a moderate level of carb in your diet, 150 to 200 grams a day, then your range now is between 0.2 grams and 0.5 grams, maybe 0.6 grams if you're lucky, mm. right? And then that's only in tests in which you've done the exercise fasted. The minute you've eaten anything within an hour of that exercise yep. program, your maximum fat oxidation, it doesn't matter what your intensity is, yep. it's not cracking above 0.3 grams sure. per minute. Right. So that dietary, that food intake is another signal for which machines we're using and what fuels we're going to Definitely. Use. So like Absolutely. if you're on a high carb diet and you do all your cardio in a fed state after you've had a carby breakfast. Yeah. You're burning fat. You're, you're a carb burner. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's why the low carb movement, I mean, as you know, I was like seven to eight years. I was a paleo caveman. Yeah. I was obsessed with the low no, carb you're a movement. you're a keto hater. I'm not a hater. <laughs> we'll get into this. 
Bernie we'll Sorbet. Bernie really Sorbet. On the record, you're, you're, I'm you're not pros. a keto hater. But you're right. People talk about improving fat burning, improving the fat burning sort of metabolic machinery. Yeah. Through yeah. a high fat diet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Is now, there is there any legitimacy to to that as a sort of claim? Can you ask me that question again in like two minutes? Because yeah. <laughs> I want to get He's back punishing to me. Let him punish me. Question. Okay. So, so the, the, the first thing we've got to see there is like we don't just produce lactate, right? Yeah. Lactate has for years been earmarked as this, as this metabolic dead-end byproduct that's bad. Right. But lactate could actually be a very essential and vital fuel for development and just for health in yeah. a sense, right? And it might be more an indicator of ill health than anything else. Yeah. So when you train, your blood lactate level, the fact that it didn't change, it might not necessarily be that you didn't make any more, but that you had all the processes in place for soaking it up. Gotcha. So we use it in the liver for the core cycle to make more glucose. We can also use it in other muscles as a fuel source, as an alternate fuel right. source than carbs. Right. So looking just at the blood lactate level mm-hmm. at those periods doesn't tell window, you where the rest of it went no. or how. So you- Jezov could be quite quite healthy and fit then, despite the high lactate? He might just be no, lacking. probably not. No. <laughs> high lactate is, is not, not good. Yeah. <laughs> I'd say Jezza probably doesn't have the capacity in his type 1 muscle fibers right. to shuttle it back in and actually... Oh, so what you're saying is someone can use glycolysis a lot but have a good capacity to utilize the, the lactate. Yeah. Then when you test their lactate level, it's, it's low. still it low, low. Yeah. but they are using a lot of carbohydrates. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. yeah, 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 definitely. And if they've got a lot of mitochondria around... They're, they're going to be using that lactate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So, so someone who's got a high lactate is either producing heaps of it because they're entirely reliant on carbohydrate, yeah. but also then their mitochondria mm-hmm. are not able to use it. Right. So, so lactate system. Is, is often, as you say, it's, it's, it's sort of branded as a toxic byproduct. Yeah. Um, is, it, is, is lactate what is responsible for that feeling of intense sort of fatigue, muscle fatigue when you w- This is the lactic acid versus yeah. lactate. See, I, I, I'm, I'm in the camp that the lactate itself is not the problem. Right. Yeah. It's how right. we connect. Because we're looking at a net effect, right? When we see, when you prick your finger, we've just done our four minutes on the bike sprinting. Yeah. We go finger prick, lactate test, here's your number, millimoles. Yes. That doesn't tell us what, what we did with any other lactate throughout that process. Yeah. Did we shuttle it? Did we use it in, in type 1 fibers. Yep. It's just saying this is what is in the right, blood so right now. So you actually may have relatively produced the same amount of lactate right. as Jeremy and myself. Your reading was lower because you were better at sort of recycling or utilizing that lactate. Yep. And uh, in isolated muscle fiber studies, so completely irrelevant to a living system, right? right? Let's take a muscle fiber out, skin it. it, and see how much power it can generate and then bathe it in lactate. It can generate more power with mm-hmm. lactate around, mm. right? So... Um, uh, I'm happy and open to, though, that at the same time as we're producing lactate, we see a, a fundamental shift in pH to make the system more acidic, but the protons causing the acidosis is coming from contraction, not glycolysis, mm. yeah. and that can stimulate type 3 and 4 nerve afferences to make you feel a little bit blur, yeah. and so that impact could be there. But the lactate mm. molecule itself, itself, I don't believe It's similar to it. blaming sugar. You know, and looking at two people, well, two, well, I mean, blood sugar. So, like, yeah, yeah, two, yeah. two people could, you could consume the same amount of carbohydrates, but one person has a better capacity to get those in, into the cell. They're more yeah. insulin sensitive. Yeah. Right? I mean, let's go back a step Similar again. in terms of us shooting the, you know, blaming um, the molecule when in fact it could be other 
It could be your yeah. ability to, to utilize lactate or in the case of sugar, your abil- ability to get it into the, the cell. Uptake, yeah. Yeah, because we're looking at net effect. Right. Right. But I think with, with the, the lactate story, I, the reason we're even talking about this is yeah. because it's been popularized of late, especially in the endurance community. I mean, it's been around for a long time, but like zone two, it's a moderate intensity. It's not high enough to be using glycolysis and having lactate as a byproduct, which can interfere with performance. It's low enough that we can oxidize fat in the mitochondria and we can generate mitochondrial health, if you want to say that. And these endurance athletes, even if their sport is way higher intensity than what they're training in, they're training low intensity for long durations to build the metabolic machinery so that their mitochondria works well. Then when they go to perform at their their sport, whatever it is, let's say it's at higher intensities, the lactate that they're building up in that event, they're able to shuttle it back into type 1 fibers and actually utilize it and keep it the, the total amount lower so they have less systemic fatigue. That's yeah, this sure. premise. Yeah, yeah. How, does that sound... So the, the way it could work is... So the key there was you're there at zone two for a long period of time. Yes. Right? And so when we have a look at fuel utilization where we fix intensity but you just go for a long period of time, then there is a general lowering and shift in your RER yep. where we see more fats getting burned. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, that would infer then that there's this... There's this other um, period of time or process taking place in my muscle where is it more economical or efficient mitochondria and we just weren't burning fats as efficiently here. Is there a specific inhibition effect where, well, since we're getting lots of acetyl-CoA from fatty acids, we don't need it from pyruvate anymore, so we just start shutting that down. But the other thing there is the main signals for glycolysis it's AMP, mm-hmm. breaking down glycogen, stimulating the enzymes for that, and also the main enzyme regulating glycolysis. So it would suggest that that stress signal for carbohydrate usage is not there as that time goes on. So the the other what we call allosteric stimulators, the small molecules that accumulate to turn on things, mm-hmm. um, just aren't accumulating when you go for that prolonged period of time. Mm-hmm. So it might be that they're there for that first initial part, and then you keep training at that lower intensity and it trains the system to clean out or reduce that stress signal. Gotcha. Because um, the other the other school of thought is that we should be doing, and this is speaking more more to what you were saying before, is that at higher intensities, we get this AMP buildup. Mm. So actually, there's protocols that I've seen like coaches and strength and conditioning coaches doing where they're using more hit, cardio hit programs and high intensity uh, resistance exercise programs. Okay. So like- relatively heavy deadlifts for repeat sets of eight to 12, minimal rest, really stressing the muscle and getting that AMP build up as a, as a means to actually have that mitochondrial biogenesis. So, yeah. so you've got zone two that say, okay, lower intensities for longer, really good for mitochondrial health. But then you've got these strength coaches that are saying, well, actually high intensity exercise, even resistance exercise and cardio exercise at high intensities is actually better for mitochondrial proliferation. So, it's left me going, well, which one is it? Is it both? But it sounds like they might be doing two slightly different things. Very different protocols. In terms of how they're affecting mitochondria. Yeah. I mean, I'm still wrapping my head around it. Yeah, but I guess the other thing there is the stimulus for growth will be the same, which is the AMP accumulation stress in the system, right? Yeah. Um, and where the strength training is working is you you build up all the byproduct. It sits there for a bit because you don't have 
the muscle pumping and the blood flow to clear it all out. And, you know, uh, one of the biggest signals for adaptation is strain on the sarcomere and the buildup of byproduct. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess what you're having... Right, so two different stimulus. Two different stimulus getting yeah. a similar result, Okay, right? But, I, you know, I, I'm enjoying the logic that by... By by pushing your mitochondria for a long period of time, you're increasing its efficiency mm-hmm. because it just gets utilized for longer and priming it like that. Mm-hmm. But I really couldn't give you what that mechanism okay. is. Yeah. Right. right. So so this stage, it seems to be that anecdotal athlete who, you know, the, the it's, it's very common in like mixed martial arts and boxing where although that sport is high intensity by nature, yeah. or at least it's got a blend of energy systems where you've got periods of, you know, moderate and then you've got, you know, sprints and bursts. The way that they train, interestingly, the guys that gas out the least, who have the best sort of gas tank, so to speak, they do the longest sort of zone two style, moderate intensity, steady state cardio. Those are the guys that build that aerobic base. So there's also something said to be said for understanding and learning how you perform in a fatigued state. Mm. Right, and so we're crossing over more now into, say, central governor models of fatigue versus mm. peripheral fatigue. Yeah. But if you only ever train feeling fresh to feeling tired and then stop, mm-hmm. when you get to competition, it can be very different when you've got to pull out your best game when you're fatigued. Yeah. And so you can't rule out, I guess, what the impact as well of Doing a very long zone too just gets you far more accustomed to the mental aptitude you need to sure. get through a fatigue state. Sure. So I'd have to I'd have to find your study in which yeah. they've corrected for that because we know that the the people who can maintain their skill set in the seventy fifth to eightieth minute of a game mm-hmm. are right. going to be your power play winners in your team. Yeah. Right. Because mm-hmm. everybody can get their fatigue, but who can still maintain their skill set and the delivery right. of it? in that same fatigue system. And if you only ever train in a good state yes, and you don't ever get yourself accustomed to how do I perform in an exhausted state, yes. then you're never really going to know how you get tested, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway. So if we were to kind of bring this back to maybe one of the, the average listener. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm sure there's a, a wide variety of listeners, but yeah. let's just say it's someone who's not necessarily a professional athlete, yeah. but they are interested in their health and well-being, and they're listening to this and they're thinking, well, I would like to know what the sort of best practice protocols are that maybe a, uh, an, an elite athlete would follow and, and perhaps they'll do their best to kind of implement some of those across the week. And they're definitely interested in their long-term health, right? So yeah. again, if we're thinking about mitochondria, um, someone someone's weak, could you know maybe it's a two week period or whatever what what does that look like in terms of the the type of training that you would like to see in a program so as a biochemist <laughs> <laughs> right that's a good yeah, we to yeah. 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 yeah yeah well i mean um, you you would you would your work would i guess would help inform yeah 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 so an exercise physiologist who would then help create programs yeah i'm listening yeah that's, yeah yeah so the, the, the simplest one so from a cellular perspective, it just needs to have been stressed regularly. Now, if you don't increase the intensity, then the system won't continue to adapt. So if you're happy with where your performance is at, 
you just need to maintain your movement, your regular activity. What we know is as soon as you start dropping off, then all of those adaptations start disappearing. Mm -hmm. So to think that you can do a certain amount of work, get to a certain threshold and then stop and maintain it, that's just folly. So your body just says basically, look, that stimulus is now gone. We don't need this number of mitochondria. Yeah. Let's downscale. That's right. Mm. So then you think about, well, what are the best tools to maintain your engagement with activity and movement. And for that, you need the variety, right? right? And you need to know what your specific goals are. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people, yeah, and I, I love running and so I will always have runs. But I know that if that was all I did, then I'd very quickly lose adaptation and other muscle sets. I would lose strength and I'd lose balance and things like that and I'd just become this particular type. So. Yeah. I think for the general population individual out there, you definitely want to be looking for a mix of systems there. Yeah. So you have your your runs or your cycle or your row or your walk, something which is a, a longer duration, but still a relatively high intensity. I guess it's I guess you're talking zone two if you're talking about sixty to seventy percent of heart rate max, right. right? Something you can comfortably do for a good thirty-five to forty minutes, but <laughs> you're not necessarily talking to the person next to you, but you're not also killing yourself to complete that, right? But then you've got to have some strength work in there. We know that the the biggest indicator of mortality after the age of 60 is a falls risk. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely nothing to do with your VO2 or your metabolic rate or what you're eating there. Fracture a hip or something. Yeah, you fall down some stairs or fall off a chair and fracture your hip, Mm -hmm. you're already on the path downwards. And then the important thing for avoiding that is balance and strength. Yep. which means for anybody who's coming in after their mid-20s onwards, you need to make sure that there is some form of strength work that's in there. Mm. And when we look at the concurrent training data, right, people who are doing aerobic or endurance work and strength training, yeah, mixing the two together, there is an interaction, mm, right? Interference effect. Yeah, there is an interference. Like yeah. the strength gains you'll get from just doing strength won't be as great if you've got some endurance work in there, but it doesn't negate it. No, right? I talk about this all the time. Mm. It, the magnitude, you still have a positive net outcome. Yeah. You just, the magnitude of the effect might be slightly smaller, but, yeah. it's, but it's been overhyped. The interference effect, unfortunately, has been hijacked by a bodybuilding Body. community. <laughs> yeah, right. Sorry to point the finger, but... What's happened in the bodybuilding community is they've pinned two mechanisms up against one another. Right. Mm-hmm. mTOR versus AMPK. Right. These two pathways that AMPK interferes with mTOR. You don't want any cardio. Well, anything that blunts, anything that blunts mTOR blunts it is not right. acceptable so th- th- in, the, in the bodybuilding world. Bodybuilding, bodybuilders right. will say, you don't need to do any cardio. Not all of them. I know plenty of, of bodybuilders course, that I'm generalizing do, here. Do I'm sorry. I've offended a lot of people. Everyone's offended. Right. Yeah. There, but are, yes, there are there are some there are out a there. lot of <laughs> there, there are a lot of people in that community who say right. listen you don't need any cardio at all all you need to do is do resistance training you're going to build a lot of muscle there's no need for the cardio in fact if you do cardio you get this AMPK build up mm. which silences mTOR it's not it's a, they're always up together but it's not like one's up one's down it's not a seesaw yeah, yeah, yeah. well this is a good question from a, for for a biochemist though. from the health of their mitochondria can they get away with just doing resistance training? Well, but with resistance training, you tend you to get shift. a concurrent. 
Well, you shift away from your type one slow oxidative True. muscle fibers, right? Yeah. Which means you if you're if you're generally training in say a six to 12, 15 rep range. Yeah. yeah. So and so if you're shifting a body type to your type two B fibers, yeah, they got very few mitochondria in them, very right. poor. And so if if mitochondrial content and function, total body is core to overall metabolic health, as some people are beginning to say in the world of metabolic flexibility, you'd have to say an engine that has very few mitochondria but lots of muscle is going to be in a, a poorer condition yeah. than one in which there's mm-hmm. at least a, a slightly higher but still strong system. Right. Yep. Right? So if, if someone wanted to supplement their their bodybuilding uh, regime yeah. with some cardiovascular-style training, yeah. Um, with regards to the various signals and, and pathways and, and the kind of attenuation effect that, that there may be, is there a kind of best practice way for positioning it around your strength training to try and oh, reduce some of that interference? I mean, yeah, so essentially most of the time you want to do your strength training before, let's say you're doing it in one workout, mm-hmm. strength first, cardio next because of that system that may be In the same session. Yeah, if you, if you, not everyone has the luxury to train twice a day and get to the gym twice a day. So if you have to combine the two, start with your strength training, get that strength stimulus, mTOR activation, then the AMPK is not really going to blunt it as much. But but if you're doing it, say, so in, in my world, if you're doing it in the one session, then if there is an interference, it will be great as if you're trying to do it in one session. When you said that, I was like, "Correct. why aren't you doing strength on Monday That's, and then do your cardio this is where we're going on to Wednesday? Next. Exactly, exactly. So your next option is, okay, you don't want to put – because let's say let's say you literally just can't mm. fit in enough workouts to get your cardio in. Yeah. It's like, I'm only going to get mm. to the gym twice this week. I've kind of got to do all my strength right. and cardio in the ones, one or two sessions. Or else my strength volume might go down the studies a show yeah. strength first, cardio second is best to limit that interference effect. Yeah. Right? Next best option, separate them AM, PM, so six, eight hours apart. Yeah. Then you're really going to actually mitigate the potential interference effect. Mm. But totally best option, different days. Like you said, yeah. so you go to cardio day, strength day. Because the adaptation occurs in recovery, not in your gym session. That's it. So you cause the stimulus, yep. allow your window of recovery, exactly. then any interference should be slighter. Absolutely. Right? Because if yeah. you're just doing it all in the one one-hour session, I'd be saying, well, your muscle cell doesn't know, oh, did this AMP come from the strength half yeah. hour or the, the running half right. hour? Yeah. You know, and the AMP is not different. It's the mm. same, right? Yeah. So um, AMP is what causes the attenuation of the the um, strength or hypertrophy adaptation. Yeah, so I think AMP right? kinase is one of the inhibitors of mTOR. Right. So um, in that case, it would make, if you were worried about the attenuation, it would make more sense to be doing lower intensity cardio cardio rather than high intensity, which would produce more AMP. So I was going to put that on the table because mm. the other thing I was... Which does Great line up point. with a lot of bodybuilders. If you speak to them, the Correct. ones that do do cardio, Long walks. Yep. they're not sprinting. No, no. But most of them will go and do a sixty-minute slow That's right. to moderate intensity this, this cardio. That's what I was going to say. Like, so you said, oh, what if you don't have time to get to the gym more than twice a week? You don't need a gym to do cardio. You don't, right? So that is where, and I'll get really public health, physical activity here on it, where like you're just incorporating that into your into leisure your time physical activity behaviors, mm-hmm. yes. right? So it is. It's a it's a long, slow walk. Right. Or if I'm going to go to the supermarket that's, I don't know, a K from home, yeah. 
I'll fast pace that. Yes. Mm. Try, right? try and get up to zone two. Yeah. 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 A brisk walk. Or, or, yeah. 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 And uh, depending upon what I'm doing around the house or what I'm doing in every day. So if I'm the person now that's taking the stairs versus the elevator, mm. if I'm the person who's brisk walking to this activity as opposed to slow walking, you're going to have that stress system in there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, walking pace, uh, from memory, I, like, I don't really get into that world of reading, but walking pace seems to be Preferred associated, yeah, seems to be associated speed, yeah. with some kind of cardiovascular disease Correct. risk. And that was the other thing. The other important thing about cardio, uh, about cardio yeah. is, as the name would suggest, it's nothing to do with your skeletal muscle. It's not your quad, your calf, your anterior mm. tibialis. It's your heart muscle that's right. important. So if you're living a life devoid of cardio, yeah. Sure, your muscles might have the strength gains that you want or the look that you want, but what about your central system, yes. right? Mm-hmm. So the benefits of exercise go far beyond the skeletal muscle, Absolutely. right? And cardio is the one that gives you the mental health benefits of an exercise, feel-good endorphin kind of effect. Um, yep. It also impacts the cardiovascular adaptations that you get for a positive effect, mm. and it, it impacts other systems mm. yep. just other than skeletal muscle. Okay. Mm. So if we zoom out for a second yeah. and we look at… We didn't have come back to Simon's keto question. We're yeah. going to get there. Yeah. We're going to absolutely get there. There's a lot of keto. Keto. <laughs> we're definitely… I know that you love low-carb diets, so <laughs> we, we're going to leave some space. Just as much as I love low-carb, mate. <laughs> I love them as much as you hate them. Come on. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to bury this. Okay. We, we might on. actually find it difficult to go out for dinner together. No, we'll, we'll, we'll find somewhere. We'll find hey, somewhere that has let's, uh, some, let's zoom out. some let's butter zoom out. you can put in a coffee. <laughs> So we've got we've got an exercise toolkit, okay? We've got an exercise toolkit. Stay on track, fellas. Okay. Fellas. Okay. Here's our toolkit, yeah. right? Do you think it makes sense to try to exercise in particular energy systems, so target systems, right? In other words, let's have a workout that's very glycolytic. High intensity interval training, everything you got, 30 on 30 off for 4 minutes, repeat that 4 times. And then we have another workout that's moderate intensity, steady state, focused more on mitochondria machinery. And then we have another workout that's perhaps a blend like resistance training, strength training, body weight training. When you, when you look at our body as energy systems, you can see how we can actually train really different workouts will target different systems, right? Depending on, maybe depending on our sport or depending on what our objective is on that day, yeah. right? Then you sort of look at, not to point the finger again, but like F45, right? Okay. Which t- for me is a blend, okay. right? It's, it's Never been to one. I, I haven't done do. it either. Okay. But, but, <laughs> but for me, it seems like it's not zone two. Okay. It's, it's higher intensity than zone mm. two. Sounds like it would generate a lot of AMP. It does sound like, yeah. It sounds like you're sort of, you're not always in zone five. You're not sort of like high intensity yeah. the whole time, but you're sort of that zone three, four, right in between. Or maybe you're touching zone five and then you're coming down in recovery to zone two. Do you think that that sounds like a form of exercise that would tap into all of your energy systems in one workout? Or are we better off to actually have prescribed days where we're going, okay, today the objective is zone two day or a zone two workout. Let's hit the mitochondria efficiency today. Next session, let's go zone five. Let's really crank a zone five. And then another session that's, you know, is it is it sensible from a biochemistry standpoint to go, okay, let's separate our workouts into systems or should we just move our bodies? Yeah, it's a, Big question. Yeah, Sorry. it's an interesting one. So, and and I guess that question just to add to that. Yeah. Is you're talking about best practice if someone could adhere to either way, because I guess some people just go just to 45 because it does it it's all. easy. Yes, right. You yeah. don't have to think about it. But yeah. if we're thinking thinking about just optimizing, optimizing a human physiology, what would you be doing? 
Yeah, variety yes. is certainly a key to it. Agree with that. Whether your philosophy is to target the ind- individual systems, like I think about the immediate energy system, which is your adenylate kinase, myokinase, phosphocreatine. So yep. that's um, creatine kinase. Yep. With sprint training, you see very little adaptation in those systems. Yep. Over time, like there might be subtle changes in the amount of the enzyme you've got around, mm-hmm. but when it comes to a performance measure, for example, those changes don't relate to it. Mm-hmm. It's more the changes in the fiber type or the hypertrophy cross-sectional area that's dominating the power performance, right? And that's yeah. your adaptation. Yeah. So uh, the capacity for individual metabolic systems to respond differently to stresses. I don't think the data's there for it. Mm-hmm. What's important is that they're actually doing something. It comes down to the system having more mitochondria in it yep. so that then there's a lesser stress on all the other systems right. which we might utilise under times where there is a, exactly. an immediate okay. need. Right. right? So, th- th- again, th- this goes back to the premise of Zone 2. People say if you build that aerobic base yes. or spend a lot of time in Zone 2, that's going to help you at higher intensities. When you do those workouts that are accumulating lactate, yes. we can actually do something with that lactate if we have a good aerobic base. Exactly right. But the reverse may not be true. If you spend all your time in high intensities, glycolytic systems, you may not get a benefit. That's not going to help you at low intensity. Right. So if you can get the mitochondria working more efficiently, then you can keep lactate levels down at, better. When you tap into those higher intensity workouts. Right. But if you only do high intensity training, well, how does that help your mitochondrial efficiency and the function of that machinery when, you, when you're looking at just burning fat? Well, it sounds like it would help with mitochondrial biogenesis. Because of the AMP buildup as a signal. Yeah. Right. So that's the thing. If, you, if you're in that system where you're stressing the immediate and intermediate, you're going to make more mitochondria. Okay. And that, so that system would definitely have more of the aerobic system sitting there waiting right. when you got there. So when um, when people started, when high-intensity interval training first came out, yeah. there were a number of papers that came out and what it showed was it wasn't necessarily better than endurance training for stimulating mitochondrial biogenesis. Mm-hmm. It just happened quicker. Okay. So people doing, uh, what was it, eight seconds on, 12 seconds to, off. Yeah. For 60 for t- bouts, yeah. yeah, right? That was the, the first minute, protocol. Right? Yeah, that was yeah, the yeah. first protocol that came out. And then 12, been, it was actually 8-12-20. 8-12-20, yeah. yeah. So 8 seconds, eight seconds on, 12, 12 off for 20, 20 minutes. minutes. Yeah. Um, uh, when you read the paper, the first week, nobody completed 20 minutes, mm. right? So, yeah, it's kind of like it's folly to think it's that's what protocol, they did, yeah. right? It was actually, they, they, I think they did like five minutes for the first session before they killed over vomiting and yeah. what have you, right? Yeah. But within two weeks, they were able to complete a full 20 minutes. Yes. Anyway, the endurance group and the high-intensity interval groups, they both had more mitochondria at the end of the time. Mm-hmm. It's just that the high-intensity interval guys get there quicker. Got it. Right. And So is there a, let's say, for example, I want to improve, I want to be able to do more work for a given level of lactate, right? Which, yeah, okay. Which seems like that's an indicator as to how well I'm able to utilize lactate and mitochondrial function. Yep. Right. Would would you say that um, doing high intensity exercise and producing more mitochondria is going to be better for me to be able to achieve that or sitting in like a moderate intensity, like a zone two 
and not focusing so much on biogenesis, but just focusing on the function of the mitochondria. Yeah, so... I'm, I'm not sure if that study's been, even been done. I think what, what I'm hearing here is what you're saying is, let's, so if you do your high-intensity workouts, you get that AMP signal to create more mitochondria. We've got more mitochondria or more powerhouses, more of the machines, but if we're not oiling the cogs and the gears, mm. then are we getting the benefit of, of having more of it? So should mm. we be getting that signal, let's have more machines, but then also spending time in the workouts of lower intensities to actually oil the machinery so that it works well? Is that kind of what you're saying? So like- mm. But we, going back to one of Simon's questions though, if we're an average listener or general population who's worried about overall metabolic health, yep. doesn't matter how we got more mitochondria, what's important is that we got them. Okay. Right. So outside of your gym bout, the person who's got more mitochondria around, they're just finding life in general easier, easier yeah. and not generating as many uh, byproducts every time they walk up a stair or they go to the shops or something right, like that. Right. So but when we think about the endurance trained study versus a sprint interval trained study, they then got people to do time trials and the people doing, so a time trial is here's a fixed amount of work yep. and we're just going to time how long it takes for you to complete it. Yep. And it might be at a certain lactate threshold right. or it might be at 70% of their heart rate max or something like that. Yep. The people who had been training at the high intensity interval group and the sprint interval groups, they still improved their time trial event in yes. what would theoretically be an endurance event. Yes. Gotcha. Right? So they can still have that benefit. I'm trying, I'm racking the brain as to what happened to the endurance guys. Mm, yeah. They would also have improved, but it's more what the magnitude of difference would have been. So over a period, so those zone two guys, as well as training, having to train for longer in their session, they might have to wait for a longer period of time, like weeks, months, right. yes. years. Yes, correct. To get that the adaptations benefit. are slower. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. For yeah. me, it's like, if you're investing in zone two, you've got to be in for the long haul. Yeah, it's going exactly to take a right. Time. And the studies do show that mm. HIIT training actually improves VO2 better right. than… Which is why I think some athletes skip it. Yes. Right, because yeah. of that. It's such you, a long-term investment. Yes. It's right. hard to, to have that instant gratification because it takes years or months or years. But that comment you just made then, that the studies show that the HIIT guys improve VO2 more, yeah. feeds back into what I was saying before about whether or not you're training in a fatigue state or not. Yeah. VO2 max, the test, it depends upon, like your number at the end depends upon who can sustain a power output at an RPE of 18, 19, and 20 longest. The longest, yes. Because we get you to exercise uh, you know, 50 watts for three minutes, yep. 100 watts for That's three it. minutes, 150 right. watts for three minutes, and now every minute I'm going to rank it up by 25 watts yeah. until you say stop. It's brutal test. And the eh? test has to be finished in like right. 12 minutes yep. before, so we know that it's physiological fatigue. Yes. And so when we get someone who's never done the test before, like they blow out, yeah. bam, like four minutes into the ramp, they're done. done. Yeah. But if we get them back three days later, they can do another couple of ramps, mm. right? Now, it's, it's not that they've adapted in three days. Mm. They just know more now what they can go through. Yes. Every, when you get a trained individual to do a max test, without fail, yeah. you'll get them like five minutes after the test going, I could have done more. Yep. Mm -hmm. yep. Right? Yep. And it's because they just haven't trained at that intensity level before. Mm -hmm. So when we think about, oh, like the hit guys, it it like it improved VO2 peak better than the endurance. The endurance guys just never knew what it went 
to be exercising at an RPE of right. 18, 19, 20. Is, mm. that, is that an indicator yeah. of central versus peripheral fatigue? Oh, it's just awareness. It's, right. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, you don't know what you can handle. They didn't go to you, that zone. Never been no. there before, yeah. yeah. It's like touching that adversity. It's like when you, when you know how hard it is, you're like, okay, I've I, mm. yeah. been there, been so, to that dark place. So how so, do you remove that? In a, an experiment to try and actually see the the well, true I think, effect. Oh, you have of, to do multiple multiple access. bouts. Yeah, right. yeah. So or motivation. So you get people like sort of cheering you on to try and get you that extra yeah extra bit in the protocol. Because I remember yeah. in, even in the lab at uni, there were tests where you'd have to really motivate the untrained We'd be individual. Yeah, yeah. You'd be shouting, yeah. you'd be yelling yeah. for years, and just, come on, you yeah. can do it because you don't want them to quit from no. that central part before peripherally they've actually got more left in and the all you're really doing is distracting them from the pain yeah. right and the awareness of the effort that they're at that's mm. what the shouting should be doing for them mm. um and so i mean that's that's stuff from the 50s you know like mm. where they're firing off guns behind people without them realizing or they've got people lifting weights hypnotized mm. or they've given them some speed or something like that and you distract them from the awareness of the of the effort and the pain they should be able mm. to push on longer mm. um but yeah, no, so from a research perspective, to get a proper estimate of somebody's VO2 max, you have to do multiple tests. Right? Mm. Yeah, you can't just do a one-off value. Yeah. Should we talk about the keto diet? We're without a producer today, but maybe Kieran could step in. He's <laughs> <laughs> taking over. Like he needs another job. He's got like seven hats he's wearing. Okay. <laughs> That's right. We're doing this. We're getting into keto. Yeah, sure. Okay, so let, let's set the scene. So, <laughs> set the scene. so Rooney says I'm a, I'm a keto hater. Mm. Because of the things I've written about. I feel like okay. there's a little bit of so, tension dad, over this side. Let's tell that story. This is a great story. <laughs> okay, so you don't mind me no, disclosing. No, no, no. So Rooney goes to see see my my dad as a <laughs> Which I'll be doing too. Yeah, you, you will too. So I probably will. I'll well. make two of us. Yeah, no. He does good work. Yeah. <laughs> he's he's good at his job. Isn't there he's, something where um he's not allowed to treat family? Yeah, so I wanted to get laser done, but he he won't. I don't know if it's like an ethics thing and, and legally he can't or whether or not he's chosen not to. But yeah, treating a family, like doing laser on a family member is something that he doesn't want to do. So he's going to send me to a colleague of his. So I'll, I'll be in someone else's good hands. But um, yeah, so Rooney went to see my dad um, for an eye operation. And <laughs> firstly, he told me that he, he said, Rooney, like he gave like the same. So, <laughs> so it's July last year, my yeah. eyesight starts disappearing. Gets to October, I can hardly read a thing, which for an academic is not a good idea. No, and I've grown sorry, and I've grown one cataract in an eye. Just one eye has decided to inflame itself mm. and grow this cataract in the space of four months. So I go along to the optometrist, just like in a in a shopping centre. Yeah, worst bedside manner ever. Like that person was flapping about. Oh, I've never seen anything like this. I can't focus on this. You're going to have to go see a specialist. And it gives me this referral to Brian Brian, yeah. Brian Harrisburg. Yeah. Did you know straight away? Were you like, mm, No, I was Harrisburg. like, that's, that's like it started echoing in his head. That's not a common name. <laughs> but I was like, all right, here we go. And then I had my first <laughs> had my first consult. It's like I hope it's not that kid who was in my <laughs> But as soon as you met Brian, you would have known. As soon, yeah. as soon as he walked into the room, I went, they're the Harrisburg yeah, Slayer, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. But it wasn't until I rocked up for the surgery. Yeah. Where he's in Bonner Junction. Yeah, yeah, I'm there just waiting um, for my turn, and he comes over, um, and I'm like, "Your son 
Andrew Harrisburg, weren't you? <laughs> and I'm sure he thought I knew you from Insta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I taught him by Kevin. Yeah. Anyway, so he's disappeared. He must have called you. No. Because he's come back with a big, Rudy! <laughs> I swear, I, I'm, he, I must have told him that story. I don't know how the, he pieced it together, but yeah, he told me he came in and gave you the big Rooney. I was laughing so hard. But the best part of the story is, so as Rooney's going under, he's under anesthetic, right? right? He has no option to come back in this conversation. No. My dad starts lecturing him about keto. <laughs> he's having to go in. Because his son's a keto hater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Rooney's going under. And he's like, so let me just tell you a few things about keto. And Rooney's like, trying to find a way to respond, but then he's, he's out. That's a classic. Oh, so here, Brian's so a here very... So now's your chance. <laughs> he's got a the funny mic. man. He's a funny he's man. He's a cracker. Okay. So the whole keto hater thing, where did this come from? So I did the keto diet. I've spoken about this on the podcast yeah. so much, but for people who ha may have not heard this, this episode that I did with Simon or a few of them, I, I was low carb for seven years as a type 1 diabetic and had fantastic results, like really, really nice, stable blood glucose control, pretty good insulin sensitivity. For the most part, all of my biomarkers were right where I wanted them to be. I took it to the extreme. I went keto for about four months. The first two months, even better results, like flatlined blood glucose, very low insulin levels. Exogenous insulin is in my, my requirements were very low. And then I ran into a proper hurdle where my hepatic glu glucose output overnight, my fasting glucose in the morning was just on its way up day after day, week after week, month after month. So I increased my basal and I kept increasing my basal trying to cover that liver output. It was like it wasn't working. My basal dose was just not doing the trick. So I, I had this high fasting blood glucose for months. And then so, so when I try to educate people around sort of the insulin carbohydrate relationship, we talk either insulin carb ratio when you're eating. So one unit of insulin will metabolize X amount of carbohydrate. The other thing we talk about is insulin correction factor. So when your blood glucose is whatever the number is, how many millimoles will one unit of insulin drop your blood glucose? So for me, both of those numbers started to increase. So I needed more insulin for a given amount of carbohydrate, even if it was very, very small. And my insulin correction factor kept climbing. So if I found that I was high in the morning for, from this overnight fast where my liver had put glucose out, what used to get me back into the normal range, I now needed twofold, threefold, fourfold. And this just kept going on for weeks. And I, I, was, I was actually such a keto lover at the time that I couldn't let go. And I was like, no, nah, this is fine. It's just a phase. It'll go away. And it didn't for two months. So I dealt with it for two months. My conclusion, as you've probably read in my writing, was that I'd lost glucose tolerance. I'd lost metabolic flexibility, a term that we've spoken about today many times. And that to get it back, I had to do something to my diet because that was the factor that had changed. I was still training the same. Everything else was the same, right? So yes, I've written, the, written sorry, that the keto diet was detrimental to my health and that it was terrible for my diabetes management. But I'm not anti it. I'm just saying long term, I think that long term, yeah. and, and this is, I've received hundreds of messages from people in the same position as me who are type 1, living with type 1 diabetes, did keto long term, ran into the same hurdles. So for me, cyclic may be fine. Yeah. Um, but long term, months and months and months, that's what I have a problem with in this particular situation. So that's where the, the keto hater thing came from, right? It's that long-term, I just, it didn't yeah. work for me. I've seen it not work for many other people. And I think that you do run into some problems. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I, <laughs> you're not actually going to get an argument from me. Oh, because, <laughs> no, because, you know, I, um, I, 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 I did keto back 2013, 2012, 2013, 2014. I was very much into it myself. Yeah. Card-carrying keto. Um, fanatic. Yeah. Um, I think I've had my license rebuked since because I, I don't advocate as much. Um, but the long-term data isn't there, right? So we know historically the platform on which the keto diet was built is all on a lot of the tribal data or um, paleo diet worlds and what have you. Yeah. Certain cultures that could live off very low carbohydrate worlds. Mm. Um, and so people would argue that, well, there's long-term history that it works for those long-term right. cultures. Um, however, I firmly sit in the world as well uh, where it's a, a cyclical thing mm. that you can get into. Yeah. Well, um, which is more likely if if ancestrally you would you would think that there would have been periods of famine. Yes. Um, which is kind of similar to a ketogenic sort of state, right? And that would have been more of a cyclical nature. Yeah, or if tribes are nomadic and mm-hmm. yeah. not necessarily Their settled. food source will change That's right. And on so, where they are or seasonally or, yeah. Yes, mm. and so if we're getting our food history either from scrap heaps that we find in settled campsites or from journals or logs of observers, well, much like we pick on modern-day nutrition for only doing one 24-hour food recall at one point in time, we could potentially just be looking at one particular point in time and that's what they ate. Yeah. Um, but again, you go from the lived experience. The research studies that have prospectively put people on the keto diets, they're not long-term studies. So we yeah. don't know what that long-term keto adaptation right. could do to you. The data where people have done studies for a few days, up to a few weeks, up to a few months, with biopsy data shows that the machinery to burn carbs reduces. Yep. So you stop making the enzymes that break down pyruvate and mm-hmm. you have lower glucose transporters and what have you. And that would add some credence to your own N equals one experience of lost metabolic flexibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because the metabolic flexibility definition is the ability to shift between fuels in response to an environmental stress. Yeah. And what you could see there and what we see in um, certain populations, if you go very low carb and then you give them carb, they would look like they're insulin resistant because they don't have the machinery around right. to yep. metabolize it. Yep. And so anyone who's had an oral glucose tolerance test would see, I think still the modern day instruction is to make sure you eat 400 grams of carb a day, day for yes. two days Correct. before the test. Mm. That came about mostly because in the 60s, I think it was, or 70s, uh, the data show, people were observing in clinics, particularly mm. this guy Joseph Kraft was showing if you had people who ate habitually a low-carb diet that had this worse-appearing glucose tolerance test, mm. but if you got them to retest right. after a couple of days of eating carbs, they looked normal. So yes. it was diet-induced Very rather than pathological. Exactly yes. right. right. Yeah, And that yeah. is because a lot of the carbohydrate-burning proteins, particularly the ones in the liver, mm-hmm. are what we call inducible. So if you don't use them, they're not there. And then if you eat them, they are there. But it might take 24 to 48 hours for the right. DNA to make the new protein and then be functional. 
Gotcha. So, and we see that in rodent studies where they feed them on ketogenic diets. The animals look like they're diabetic if you do a glucose tolerance test. Right. Retest them a few right. days later and they okay. come yeah. back and, and, and metabolize I mean, the so, so that's that's more thinking about, I guess, the ketogenic diet in the context of managing diabetes and thinking about um, blood glucose control. But a lot of the claims online that, that I see related to the ketogenic diet are that somehow it's better for mitochondrial health. So is there is there any sort of evidence of that? Is that is there a case to be made, let's say, for example, adopting a ketogenic diet in whatever uh, flavor you desire? Um, there are a lot of different foods that could make could could sort of uh, be within a, a ketogenic diet. Um, but is there a case to be made for doing it in a cyclical nature? for some benefit with regards to the mitochondria? So, <clears throat> depend upon what their indicator of metabolic health is, right? If we're talking about the capacity, so the definition of metabolic flexibility we are talking about before was a metabolically flexible individual after an overnight fast will have a low RER showing that they can burn fat and then they can respond to whatever stress you're doing. If you're exercising, you continue to burn fats. An individual who's on the ketogenic diet become rapid fat burners. Like their, their maximal fat oxidation can be three, four times what you'd see in yeah. a person who eats carbs. And right? just to be clear, that's mm. the fat in the diet. Yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so um, you look at that and you go, wow, they must have wonderfully functioning mitochondria to be able to do that because you can only burn fat in the mitochondria. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right? Um, and so you'd be sitting there going, all right, cool, we've got that kind of data to suggest that they're doing well. But the other thing to note with something like a ketogenic diet is it's very hard to eat a ketogenic diet that's full of ultra-processed foods. Mm. Now, where you get general population are getting, I think it was 40% of our energy from discretionary foods, yeah. which are ultra-processed products. Mm. So the first thing you do for somebody when you put them on a ketogenic diet is you remove that. Right. Now, I know that you can go to Coles and get yeah. keto bars and what yeah, have yeah, you, but sure. if you're doing it properly, you're not subscribing to that. Correct, so right? That happens with everything, paleo. That happens if someone does a plant-based diet. That's yeah. a commonality among all of those, yes, right? Yeah. <laughs> you shift away from the standard Western diet. You take 40% of calories from discretionary foods and push them to the side. Yes, yeah, and so when you start looking at people eating whole food patterns, then sure, there is definite indicators in that meal plan that would be um, positive for mitochondrial health because there's all of a sudden you're taking someone who wasn't eating any vegetables and they're all of a sudden they're eating vegetables. Sure, they're all only above ground and mm. they're only certain types, but at least they're eating some that they never did before yeah. and that brings along the whole with the, a whole heap of micronutrients and the like. Mm. So... Um, we recently, one of my PhD students recently completed a trial where we uh, recruited patients with chronic pain mm -hmm. and put them on a ketogenic diet for three months. But what we did was for the first three weeks, we didn't go keto, we just went whole food. Mm -hmm. And everybody got that run-in diet and then we randomized gotcha. to some stayed on it and some went keto. Okay. And... At the end of the three months, we've got some distinct differences between the two groups on some of the measures of inflammation and body mass and what have you. But the bulk of the improvement in pain we saw in that three-week period, mm -hmm. right, yeah. where everybody was just eating the whole food diet. Yeah. And then what happens is after the, the ketogenic group continue to improve, 
but it might be another point, point and a half. The whole food diet, they also just kind of hover around there, but they were going from high scores of sevens and eights down right. to these fives and sixes. So the biggest benefit is potentially from what you eliminated. Yeah. So, and, and so it, I, so, you know, we've only done the one trial. Right. It's 30 people. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, as much as it's published, it's a pilot trial, but that's where I'd be sitting there going, right. well, the first thing that we would have to uh, ear to earmark is, yeah. That three-week period where we cleaned out some diet, we saw benefit mm-hmm. right there. Right. Um, and when we think of so when we think about going, somebody going from what general population I eat, what I'm typically eating, to a low-carb ketogenic diet, not only are you restricting carbs, but you're also cleaning out the diet. A lot, sure. Right. Yeah. So now, to look at it from what we're eliminating and what we're adding back in. Yeah. Two very important things. Yeah, and so you know that's going to be a benefit. Yeah. Um, you know then also, as you touched on, Simon, in that keto world, you're kind of fasting right. um, or famining uh, because it's carb restriction that's in there. And in that world, fasting has particular um, components that stimulate mitochondrial synthesis. Right. Um, and so you would argue that there are probably elements in there that are also having that potential. Has effect. anyone looked at that, looked at s- someone adopting a ketogenic diet over a certain period of time and looked at mitochondrial density. That's what I'm trying to think. I'm, I'm racking my brain to think of a study okay. I had and I can't think that there is one. We'll, we'll, we'll put a pin in that one for yeah. round two. I suspect we'll be back for round two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but it's so so I guess my position on that is, is that I don't think that living in ketosis, in a state of ketosis long-term, forget about what the evidence shows. I just, it, it doesn't feel like a, a healthy way to live if if from my experience, I've saw these biomarkers changing. Like imagine if at, at the two-month mark, which I imagine a lot of the studies are say four to six weeks. or yeah, yeah. If I was one of those subjects, I would have come out of that study waving the keto flag being like, guys, it's the way to go. Like it was unbelievable. My blood sugar was the lowest it's ever been all the time. My insulin requirements are like, it's when you push it beyond that sort of eight-week mark, in my experience mm. anyway is where I ran into the hurdle. So it's just like, I don't mind going in and out of it. It might be a great tool. I think there's a lot of people with type 1 diabetes who do it fairly long-term and have great results. Yeah, I'm just saying be cautious about how long you're in it for. And if you start to see that your blood glucose is increasing in the mornings and you're needing more insulin, perhaps it's time to have a look at other options and maybe cycle out of it for a bit and then come back in. But as long as you've got that healthy framework of whole food-based, minimal processed foods, if any at all, you're probably going to do... You're going to get the most bang for your buck out of that. And, and when you say cycle out of it, it's not cycling out of it back to a junk food diet. Correct. Right? Correct. It, it's cycling out of it going, well, maybe now I can increase, or maybe I can include rice and potato. Right. You know, or some other starchy carb vegetable source that's in there. Yes. Where you're kind of like, well, it's still bringing with it micronutrients. Yeah. It's not, I'm going to go start eating ultra-processed bread. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Um, so if you're sitting in that world going, I'm going to cycle in and out of it and have periods of time where I'm very low-carb versus mm. moderate-carb, but those carbs are still coming from a healthy food source, yeah. then you can't, it'd be really hard to say that's negative. Yeah. Um, I agree with that. Yeah. So we're on the same page. Kind of. I just don't post on Insta about how crap it is. <laughs> it was one time. <laughs> oh, no. but, but, but the thing is, we're kind of in a unique situation at the moment where we have a lot of people in the community who are self-prescribing themselves a keto diet mm. and maybe doing it long term. Yeah. Mm. So they might be sitting there going, no, 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 that's rubbish. It works for me. Mm. Right. 
And so those are people who we kind of need coming into labs and doing studies mm-hmm. because yes. the cost of being able to, or you'd never get a grant from NHMRC or ARC or somebody to go, I'm going to find 100 people to put on a keto diet for five years mm. to have a look at what happens. And the adherence won't be great either. No. That's right, right? Yeah. So um, what we would more likely be looking for are people who are free living humans right. in today's modern put environment. Put their hand up who and can, say, I can do yeah. this. I've been doing it already. Yes. It's working for me. Please study me. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. And so we did a study like that a few years ago. We had 120 people come through. Some people who were self-identified as low carbers. We put them through um, some uh, M- uh, maximal fat oxidation tests and lactate threshold tests. We haven't been able to publish the data yet, but there is a subtle variance yeah. there. And when we look at it though, when we manipulate the data, and I say manipulate because you get data like that, you go, well, my hypothesis was people who are lower carb should be able to burn more fat than in, than people who aren't. Mm-hmm. But then the question is, what's lower carb? Right. Is it relative percentage of energy right. or is it an absolute amount? Yep. Mm. Right? Is and it that's grams n- per day or is yeah. it 15%? Of, yeah. And that's not always clearly articulated, right? Some people come out and go, it's 30 grams a day, that's, that's it. it. Mm. And then they have this, which is 5% of your total energy intake. So we manipulate it by going, all right, what's the data look like if we do it? When we do it relative to energy percentage, it's very hard to find a metabolic advantage for the low carb. Gotcha. But when we analyze it by absolute amount, it's definitely there, Okay. right? And so you kind of sit there and you go, oh, so maybe there is something about that threshold of around about 55, 70 grams of carb a day that seems to be having its impact. Mm. Interesting. The other term that comes up, and this might speak to the duration of these trials, is fat adapted. Yeah. Talk to me about that. So fat adapted is, I guess, what Drew was touching on where you kind of lose the metabolic flexibility because you start reconditioning your machinery to run on fat, to burn Mm. fat. So kind of what we were saying earlier You've got this mitochondria that can get fuels from carbs, fats, proteins, ketones. When you go on the very low carbohydrate, certain parts of breaking down glucose through glycolysis and and transporting around the system, you just don't have those proteins around. And so you have mitochondria running off the 80% of your energy coming from fat and the ketones that you're producing, either endogenously from your fat stores or from the fat that you're eating. So you are effectively then very low RER. Your peripheral tissues are utilizing fat as the predominant fuel source throughout the system. Whereas normally at rest, you might be burning 50-50 fat and carb. You're now almost entirely burning fat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the fat adaptation, um, the literature is vague on how long it takes. Some individuals, it might be five days. Some others, it might be three weeks, right? And it's this period of time in which you, uh, your system is going through that gray area of transitioning. And when we think about the brain, the brain is typically running off glucose in a normal carb-eating individual. For a long time, the, the rhetoric was that it can only run off glucose, but we know now that it can actually shift down to a mix of 50-50 glucose ketones if you're on these mm-hmm. low-carbohydrate diets. Mm. That's your fat adaptation. Gotcha. Well. Yeah. Okay. Sense. Interesting. Yeah. So just to, to kind of... Um, put a, a full stop or an exclamation mark on this, on the claim that a ketogenic diet is better than other diets for mitochondrial health. Yeah. Is that is that a claim that you think is well substantiated or it's not substantiated and needs more evidence, m- more studies? Definitely needs more evidence. I'd, I'd, from a theoretical perspective, 
you'd have to say it sits in line with paleo principles. Mediterranean diet principles would almost be there as well because um, Mediterranean diet is a higher fattish. Right. It's still relatively low carb. Mm -hmm. It's like maybe yeah, low to 30%. Yeah, mm -hmm. if your energy is coming from it. Um, but again, that comes down to that absolute world. Yeah. Um, but the important thing to note there as well is there have been studies where they recruit humans and put them on different types of diet, Atkins diet, Zone diet, right. Ornish diets and what have you. And when you have a look at at least body mass, if that's your primary outcome, um, there are responders and non-responders and then there's a bunch of people who are in the middle. Mm. And uh, I guess what Drew's touching on there as well is you can find it works for you for a period of time and then it doesn't. You, that will be common for many different diets. It's right. not so much finding one unifying diet for everybody to subscribe to, mm, um, but it's the one that is actually going to remove you mostly away from this dependency on discretionary right. foods and ultra-processed yeah. diets, right? Yeah. Um, but the central tenets of uh, paleo, which had a little bit more carb than keto, shall we say, mm -hmm. Mediterranean and uh, the keto diet is removal away from the yeah. ultra process, easy to eat mm -hmm. um, high carbohydrate diet stuff. Yeah. So what we, in that realm, we would see a lot of the components of a diet that are promoting of mitochondrial health right. as opposed to, and, and removing ones that we know are detrimental, mm -hmm. the emulsifiers, the preservatives. That makes sense. This is more related to performance now. So yeah. if someone is on a ketogenic diet yeah. and they have been, for months or years and they're fat adapted and their metabolic machinery is yeah. in fat mode. And then they decide they want to try do a high power output sport like, you know, some some sort of like, I don't know, like AFL or um, cycling or running that's, you know, requiring high power output and that glycolytic system. Would they be lacking those gears that take them to those higher power outputs? That seems to be what some of the, some of the literature is saying, right? So... Uh, what you've got there is an individual who's got a system trained to run off a fuel system, which is what not what we'd typically use for that high bursting activity. Yeah. So there might be that mismatch. Yeah. Um, and some of the data uh, um, Louise Burke talks about, uh, amongst others, is that in those individuals, there's a, a loss of oxygen efficiency at the maximum rates mm -hmm. or if or higher power outputs and yep. intensities. So you might see an advantage up until that 70%, 80% right. VO2 max value, but then when you push yourself above that, that machinery isn't there. Yep. But we're talking about a handful of studies that have come out in the last seven mm. years. Yeah. They, they haven't been able to stand that test of time. They haven't been able to re be replicated or tested. Mm. Um, but the, the general identification that... Uh, a few months of keto diet might get you to a similar level of endurance capacity to where you were before, but you're doing it off a cleaner, healthier program than the high carb. Um, it, it's kind of there. The longer term diets, whether or not you're getting an advantage isn't so much just that you can do it on that diet, but those higher intensity ones is still yep. sporadic evidence, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but in that whole conversation, there also needs to be the context of what are you doing outside of your event, mm. right? So where an area of great need is looking at the retired athlete, mm. right? There's lots of 
uh, anecdotal examples you can pull out of people who were at their fittest, healthiest prime when they're competing. Yeah. And then 10 years after retiring, there is a, a metabolic disorder there yeah. or a very deconditioned system. Yeah. And whether or not that is a consequence of eating patterns that they've developed during training and performance that now is no longer suited to a lower physical activity right, world or lower right. exertion one. That's right. a really important question. Classic example is the swimmer. Yeah, right. They retire from swimming and they just blow out, gain a lot of weight. Essentially, they, they you wouldn't even believe they were ever an athlete. It's, so, yeah. Yeah, so what are we doing to the athletes and, and then more generally, the general population who maybe not an elite athlete but train and compete to their elite level yeah. who then hit their 40s or 50s or 60s no longer are competing and training, do we have a system there that is designed to run off this carb-based world but we're no longer ex exercising? Mm. And some of the low-carb, the paleo conversation would be, regardless of performance, it's a healthier lifestyle to have. Mm -hmm. And you put in place those rules around what you are eating. Mm -hmm. You put in place a, a philosophy that is healthier. So separate to the training, yeah. And the competition is, are we a healthier, cleaner system just outside of what yeah. we're doing as well? Yeah. So in a way, the exercise is like protective when you're eating a, a lot of carbohydrate. If you're exercising a lot, well, yeah, I mean, you can utilize it. This is this is the mindset of, of a lot of low carbers is like, well, carbs aren't necessarily inherently bad. It's that if we can use them appropriately, if we can replenish glycogen, say, after a workout, yeah, they're fine. But if you're always eating them all the time, you might run into problems. That's sort of a low-carb um, way yes. of seeing it. Yes. Um, I think it was actually at a – was it Sydney Uni? Where it was a Volek who gave a talk. You invited me to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, We watched him give this uh, talk and he was saying how after – when people are on a keto diet and they do exercise, they have a way to replenish glycogen in their muscle even if they don't eat carbohydrate. That mechanism, I cannot understand how that happens. I don't Do think you, he can either. Oh, he can, oh really? And so, that um, sounds like a survival thing, right? To have because, glycogen there in case we, we really need it. Yeah, to, like if you were famining or yeah. you didn't have carbohydrate in your diet, but you still want to escape predation, you'd want to keep your glycogen stores yeah. up, right? Yeah, so that study had individuals in there who were self-reported keto for I think anywhere between nine months and three years or okay. nine months and two years, right? That would be the longest recorded data that we've got. Before that, most of the studies are a few days, a few weeks, a few months. And so Jeff Volek's collaborator, Steve Finney, his paper from the 80s, which is also a landmark one, it showed lower glycogen in those individuals. Mm -hmm. So Jeff's paper is pretty much, I think, still the only one out there mm -hmm. that suggests long-term, low-carb ketogenic, mm -hmm. equivalent glycogen levels to a carb eater. Oh, is that the is that the paper that we flicked back and forth on email? Oh uh, yeah. So I flicked you one, then you flicked me the Louise right, Burke one. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Great paper, the Louise yeah, Burke yeah. one. Like if you want a comprehensive read, that's can, the one to read. We'll right. put that into the show notes. Because Jeff's one is just his one off study. Uh -huh. right. But Louise's one's a comprehensive review of all of the low right. carb papers that are out there at the moment, mm -hmm. right? Uh, or up until twenty twenty one. Yeah. Mm. Um now the mechanism for where that equivalent glycogen is coming from is open to anyone right. to hypothesize and test. I mean, if we think about where glycogen getting laid down in recovery occurs, well, if you're eating your carbs, like there's still some carb being eaten in those individuals. Sure. Um, and right. if you're eating it at the end of that session when you're in a high recovery phase, yeah. well, there's 
no reason to suggest that, that glucose isn't just getting straight pumped Pref- straight into it. Preferentially go in there. You can supercompensate, yeah. like if you time it, yeah. Yeah, if we consider the earlier papers from the 80s and 90s, which showed that um, you know, the enzyme that breaks down carbs in the mitochondria is less in an individual who's low carb, mm. well, that would suggest if that's happening in these long-term low carbers, whatever carb they're eating, they're not burning. Yeah. It's getting stored, mm. right? And right, so... Right. Uh, and and so well, maybe in that recovery eating period, it's just getting shuttled into storage. Okay. And then, but yeah, yeah these are all theories because right. that's just that one paper that we haven't Could yet. Could the liver, up. through gluconeogenesis, distribute glucose out of the liver, and then the muscles uptake it and store it as glycogen? Is that a possible? To store glycogen, you need to have that insulin stimulus as well, though. Okay. Right. So the main enzyme that is the final step of glycogen storage has to be turned on by insulin. Okay. And so. It'd be hard pressed to think that the liver's pumping out enough glucose to stimulate enough insulin to promote that storage, right. but it might. Um, the uh, the other thing to consider there is um, the uh, there's two signals for how the glucose transporter gets activated on the membrane of the skeletal muscle. One is insulin, mm-hmm. and the other is exercise. Yeah, AMP kinase. Yeah, right. One of the things it does is it stimulates glucose transport. Mm-hmm. So again, if you are timing your feeding to put the calves in that recovery period when you've got a lot of AMP kinase gotcha. active, you'd be storing it Is that it a GLUT4 pathway? Yes, it is. Okay. Well done. You, you're Still a robot. Still got that. Come full circle. I feel <laughs> like I've, I've been part of uh, one of Rooney's lectures now. <laughs> <laughs> I can say I'm, I can say I'm a student, right? <laughs> yeah. You just went through exercise physiology yeah, school. Yeah, we right? are uh, all hours. officially students of, of uh, Rooney. <laughs> Awesome. Awesome, man. Well, thank you. Oh, yeah, not a problem. Oh, awesome, so man. it's gone thank on you. far longer than I think we all expected oh, it to. I could yeah. keep going, but I know you guys. I've got to run. <laughs> no, I'm, I, I think, that, I think the, the listeners will find that fascinating and no doubt there will be many questions. So yeah, we'd right. love to have you back on. Yeah, and there's there's always far more papers out there than there is time to read them. So no doubt there's True. probably yeah. somebody that's read something that I right. haven't. It's like, have yeah, you like read one. this one? And yeah. send it in. We'll read it. And, For sure. Well, yeah. that's science. I'm going to send you that Philip Calder uh, yeah, 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 six yeah. inflammation paper. Cool. Excellent. There's plenty of papers to share. So you're not you're not lecturing anymore at Cumberland oh, Campus? Yeah, no, we no. Still... no we, they shut down Cumberland <laughs> Campus. Oh, really? We're okay. all on camper down now. Oh, you're a camper down Yeah, we're all in a brand new building. Beautiful. Brand new degree we've been running. So you're still out. lecturing the Xphys 101s? Well, but... see, biochemistry is not an essential competency for really? accredited exercise physiologists. Come so on. So I've gone from two units of study on cell metabolism and biochemistry yeah. down to about three weeks. Do you think it should be really? essential learning? I'm biased, right? right. It's, it's, my, it's my trade. So I yeah. now have an elective which teaches uh, fundamentals of bioenergetics. Okay. Right? Um, but effectively, to get the accreditation to be EPDSs, mm. there's some mechanistic stuff in there at the fundamental energy systems. But getting into a lot of the nitty gritty is not a core mm. skill. It's more right. about yeah. um, the training design and sure. implementation and what have mm. you, yeah. uh, which you need as a practitioner. Whereas the fundamental fun theories and mechanisms, mm. they're not essential. Do you know well, David Robinheimer and I Stephen I do Simpson? know David and Yeah, Steve. Have I, you had them I on? had them on the show. No. Um, I'd like to get them into the studio actually because that was in COVID so we did that remote, yeah, yeah. remotely. But um, they're great guys and have so many incredible stories. Yes, yeah, great stories. Mm-hmm. Oh. Are they colleagues of yours or? Yeah, so so I was in the Charles Perkins Centre up until last year when they opened up this new building for us. 
and Steve's the academic director for the CPC. Gotcha. David it leads the nutrition domain within the mm. CPC. Okay. Um, so while we haven't worked together, we know each other, gotcha. talk a lot, mm-hmm. and um, have been in each other's presentations from time to time. Awesome. Mm. Mm. Okay. That whole protein leverage. Yeah, nutritional right? geometry. Thank you for joining me for this episode and your interest in science-based conversation. I hope you enjoyed it and found the information covered interesting and instructive. If you did and you'd like to show your support for the show, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can stay up to date with new episodes and watch them in video format. Yes, the full-length videos. Please also consider subscribing to the show on the Spotify and or Apple Podcast app, wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple or Spotify. Again, a great way to support the show and make our content more discoverable for others to enjoy and learn from. If you have any comments about the episodes, suggestions for future episodes, including guests you'd like to see on the show, or questions that you'd like to have answered, please leave those in the comments section on YouTube. I myself and my team will take note of these comments when planning future episodes. Finally, the best way to support the show and receive discounts on products we love is by checking out our sponsors at theproof.com forward slash friends. Enjoy your week, stay well, and I look forward to catching you in the next episode.